tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome along to Tip Today, 1800 938 007. That's our free phone number. Won't cost you to make a call. Emma is looking after this morning's programme. Coming up on the show, do media, uh, media outlets need to take some blame for last week's protests outside of the Dáil? Uh, the Best of Tip Awards returning on Tip FM. Uno Hagen, the former RTE newsreader, will be with us live in studio to talk about her latest book, which is called The Monsignor. It's an amazing read. It's an amazing story, and it does have a Tipperary connection as well. Um, global Politics with uh, Thomas Conway. Ali is in Cashel for this week's Walks and Talks and Neil Dennehy, our physiotherapist, will talk to us today about arthritis, so all of that and much, much more on the way. You can text him WhatsApp 083 311 You can email tiptoday at tipfm.com Let's have a look at your headlines in the newspapers today. The Irish Indo, they're leading with the story that the price of a three-bedroom semi-detached home nationally has breached the €300,000 mark for the first time since 2007 as prices for homes outside of the capital and major cities soar. I just had a look at the uh, Tipperary number there and the Average for a three-bedroom semi in Tipperary is 2,300, I beg your pardon, 234,375 euro. And that's up uh, 4.2% just in the last three months, which is kind of interesting. The um, Irish Daily Mail and uh, TDs have told uh, the finance minister to protect the squeezed middle as the budget countdown begins. It comes amid widespread concerns about huge spending overruns as the HSE looks for another bailout. Anxious Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael TDs want uh, Michael McGrath's uh, first budget to, to prioritise the squeeze middle who have been hit with increased household bills of up to €4,000 a year. To the Irish Times... And again, their main stories around the budget. Ministers are set to clash today over a projected €1 billion euro overrun in the Department of Health, which has complicated uh, Budget 2024 talks, as you can imagine, as they enter a rather crucial phrase. No, no, I didn't get that wrong. It's a €1 billion euro overrun in the Department of Health, which is just... Incredible. Also on the Times today, air quality in Ireland is generally good, but there are persistent concerning localised issues threatening public health due to highly damaging fine particle pollution. And that's according to the EPA. And finally, let's have a look at the Irish Examiner. And their lead story is a very interesting one indeed because Garda Security Services are monitoring a small group of individuals in Ireland associated with an Islamic State offshoot that is causing growing concern across Europe over its violent intent. And the Garda's intelligence chief also told the examiner that uh, his officers are investigating around 60 cases of suspected financing of terrorism every year, most relating to monies destined for IS uh, type terror group. So that's a look at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. If you want to make comment on any of that, uh, 083 We'd be glad to hear from you. Now on Friday I spoke to John McGurk, uh, media commentator and editor of Gripped Media Platform, the online 
political news platform uh, regarding the far-right uh, protest outside of Leinster House last week. Now, we got a huge reaction from listeners on that conversation. One of our regular contributors, Paul McCarthy, uh, is with me in studio. Paul, good morning to you. Morning, Fran. Uh, good to see you today. You were listening to the conversation uh, last week, and I was kind of interested in your take on it, because it's not what I imagined it would be for some reason or other. You think we need voices like Gripped? to provide some balance, do you? Yeah, I do, Fran. Good morning, listeners. I do. Um, <clears throat> how to how to begin this without going down too many rabbit holes. When I was a schoolboy, um, I would while away a half hour or so watching uh, newspaper vendors. Uh, on the railway stations, there would be uh, all 10 feet long tables set out and all the titles were on it. And I used to uh, try and second guess, judging from the appearance of the person approaching the newsstand, what they would buy. Uh, and it, was, it became almost, with men, very predictable. If you had a bowler hat, you would buy the Times or the Telegraph. If you had overalls, you'd buy the Mirror or some other title similar to it. In the middle, you'd buy the Express or the Mail. And I began then to wonder why. And I thought, it's been kind of, it's a kind of thing that just bubbles over in the back of my head. And it's people like familiarity. They trust familiarity. People like to have their own prejudices reinforced. So you won't buy a left-wing title if you are, have right-wing leanings. But you really should. You really should know what is it that keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Yeah. You really should understand what makes extreme uh, views extreme, why they think the way they think. And often, uh, Joseph Goebbels, during the, the Nazi regime in the 30s in Europe, he understood this. Yes. He was a very clever man, and he set up the Ministry of Propaganda... And in the day, the word propaganda didn't have the overtones it has today. Propaganda was okay. Mm. It was okay to be a propagandist. Didn't imply spin or lies or mm, dodgy truths. And <clears throat> he claimed that it doesn't matter if it's a lie. If you repeat it often enough with enough, with enough gravitas in the right form... So the Nazi party set up state media. People will believe it. And since then, there have been lots of uh, well, I suppose social science-type studies on why, if you, if you repeat a, mis, uh, a lie, let's call it a lie, mm. if you repeat a lie often enough, it will get believed by a significant number of people. And then we come on to... Things like, well, if it's not a lie, is it a lie if you don't... If you have four bits of information to give people to make a proper judgment, but you hold back two of them and you replace them with dodgy bits of information that, which would make people doubt themselves, is that lying to people? It's certainly not telling the whole truth. So you, you, you sell a part truth. And... I think I'm right in saying that under canon law, um, the clergy 
could excuse themselves. The clergy could basically, I suppose, tell untruths or be very, very economical with the truth with this process called mental reservation. I don't know if you remember it, but mental reservation in the day... This was about why didn't the clergy come clean, in in a nutshell, during the um, period when there were so many accusations of abuse being levelled at them. And one of the... I think I'm right in, in this. One of the bishops said... Well, we have me- under canon law, we have mental reservation. What's that? And the example given was, if you have... Say I got very cross with the parish priest. Very, very cross. And the parish priest knew I was cross with him. I go storming up to the presbytery, bang on the door, and he'd know what he was in for. So the curate would come. And the curate would say to me... I'd say, is father whatever in... And the curate would say to me, no, I'm afraid he's not in. And then silently, this is the mental reservation part, to himself, he'd say, to you. So he'd say, Fran, he's not in. And then to myself, to you. But that absolves him yes. of the lie that yes. was there. Yes. Wow. yes. And then cherry-picking information. You know and I know, well, we all know that our... Minds are influenced subconsciously almost by what we read and what we hear and what we see. <clears throat> and to go back to familiarity breeds reassurance and breeds um, comfort. So if you have... Uh, we, we have in our society now... Uh, you, you know that the, the farming community is very close to my heart. I'm not a farmer, but I think they are hugely important section of society, hugely important, hugely undervalued and hugely mistreated. And the politicians and the farming uh, lobby groups, politicians who need the farmer's vote and, lo- and the lobby groups who clearly are representing farmers, will say that f- dairy farming in Ireland... This is the statement. Dairy farming in Ireland is the most carbon-friendly farming in the world. I've heard this many times. But if you go back and say, well, what's the evidence for that? And that's a really critical question in this debate. What's the evidence? What is the evidence for that statement? Well, the evidence goes back to a publication in 2004 by the EU that's since been replaced by... Uh, and incidentally, it was Austria and Ireland who were who hold the joint title back mm. in 2004. But in 2010, a German and Dutch study came out which said that Ireland was fourth best for dairy and ninth best for beef. But that gets but we don't we don't mention we don't that. talk about okay. that. And then it's a bit like that. <clears throat> so when you say let's let's go back to the original, Ireland is the the most carbon-efficient dairy producer in the world. Let's have that as a statement. Mm. What does that actually mean? It's a bit like Jimmy coming home from school and saying, Mummy, I got the highest points in the maths test today. And she says, oh, great, that's good news, that's brilliant. What did you get? He said, 11%. What? Yeah, all the other kids are useless at maths. (laughs) And it's a bit like saying... "Yes." We are the most carbon efficient. What does that actually mean? Put a number on it. Put a number on it and give it evidence. Well, the number 
is one kilogram of carbon dioxide for every litre of milk. And now you've got something you can actually measure, Fran. You can actually see what you're talking about. Other than this notion... But take, take that then to the beginning of our conversation, the responsibility of media, Paul, because that's yep. what this is about. Yep. I mean, <clears throat> is it up to the media then to investigate that, interrogate that, and, and put those arguments... Well, it's, to a question of, it's a question of resources and time. Most people listening to the media or reading the media don't have the time to question this, these mm. statements. So they go in mm. kind of, well, I want to question it, but I haven't the time, so I'll just park it. But, but for instance, uh, all the major um, agricultural um, organisations have given me that information that you're talking about there. about uh, the, the first one, yeah, the, the 2004 one. one. Yeah, they've all done it. Not the 2010 one. No, 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 no. They've all given me the one about how great we are here. All the politicians have as well. Um, and so, so you're right. I've taken that on board as We all do, Fran. It's not you. This isn't a personal beating up exercise. Yeah. We all do it. But I have a cousin in Dublin, uh, Dan, and he won't be listening, so it's all right, and he wouldn't mind if I said it. Dan is uh, an engineer, computer scientist, and historian, in all rolled up into one. Mm. And he's a fellow at Trinity College, and I love him, because I, I can have a long conversation with this man. And if I give him... Uh, if I said to him, Ireland is the most carbon-efficient dairy producer in Ireland, he would immediately say, Paul, what's the evidence for mm. that? Mm. Immediately. And the best question you can put to anybody, whether it's <clears throat> whether you hear it on the radio, read it, see it on the telly, or read it in the paper, or somebody comes to your doorstep canvassing or giving you their opinion of things, it's the notion that these are only opinions. Mm. They only become statements <clears throat> of fact when there's evidence. Excuse mm. me. <clears throat> so somebody comes, ding-dongs the bell, will you vote for me? I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Well, what have you done in the past? Well, I did. I improved the, <clears throat> the uh, lighting in Clonmel. Mm. Well, what exactly does that mean? One lamppost? Mm. Yeah? Or hundreds? If, if somebody borrows your car, and drives all around the country, and it's full of diesel when you've got it, and drives all around your, your, the country and brings it back and said, oh, by the way, friend, I refueled your car. I put one litre in it. <laughs> but they did technically refuel the car. Yeah. And this is... All these examples are fair... Well, the latter one is a trivial example, mm. but it, it's how you... PR companies, public relations companies, thrive on cherry-picking data, picking out the most palatable bits of it, which are often not supported by the evidence, and mm. brewing these into a concoction that's easily swallowed by the consumer. And, of course, most people, as you pointed out, Paul, we're all too busy. We're running around Far the place. Far too busy. You know, and we but, will take a headline, and, you know, we'll take that on board as being the, the truth. You can become an extreme sceptic if you follow some of my my views on this, and and that's not good either. The the believe nothing until you have it corroborated, until you have some data. Laura Burke, who runs the who's the uh, director of the Environmental Protection Agency, was up um, when the water quality report came out. <clears throat> it was. Um, rubbished 
to be simple, it was rubbished by farming lobby groups. Yes, they said the science wasn't all it should be. The science was... There was absolutely nothing Mm. wrong with the science. It just gave the wrong answer. (laughs) It just gave the wrong answer. The the science was... Is that was the what the EPA had to do was dictated was to, that was told by the EPA. The EPA simply followed that uh, protocol, if you like, mm. and the the result was sorry, Ireland, you failed. Mm. That's it. But because you don't like the answer, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing wrong with the question. And in any case, all the farming community those in a position to uh, look at the science of what the EPA had been charged with knew exactly what... So so Chagask, for example, mm. would have known exactly what the EU was asking the EPA to do as a condition of this <clears throat> nitrate derogation thing. But because... And honestly, Fran, there were four conditions on this, <clears throat> and one of them was ab- it was absolutely predictable mm. and certain that we would fail and uh, the the condition just just to just to explain the condition was if the average nitrate level in water r- rose by more than 1 milligram per liter then derogation would be withdrawn mm. and 1 milligram it was it was absolutely shooed in. It was nailed on that it was going to fail. So so why if you knew, Fran, that your car only had a litre of petrol in it or fuel in it, and somebody said to you, I oh, don't worry, Fran, we'll 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 figure it out somehow, you wouldn't you wouldn't head home, would you? You'd say, Oh no, I've got to do something. Well, you it. know, there was lots of argument against that in that farmers weren't given enough time, for example, Fran, even though that's... they had invested in doing it. But I d I don't want to go down no, the no, full, no. Oh, the full, that's a rabbit. That's the full a rabbit, rabbit hole of, that's of a this rabbit. because yeah, it's a whole I agree. Other I agree. But for but instance, you're... with your own very well-held beliefs about green issues and that. Do you interrogate yourself? I mean, do you read opposing views all of the time? Of course I do. I've been on on air saying that to fill an energy hiatus gap, we should put into this country small modular nuclear reactors. Mm. Now, to any to to loads of my colleagues in the Green Party, this would be this would be heresy. Yes. But to me, it's common sense. So we we need to 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 step back from producing carbon dioxide one of the best ways of doing it is renewables the other way of doing it is to put in small modular reactors nuclear reactors that will take power until we build up the renewable infrastructure to a state where we can rely on it 100% all year round all right on a more general political um a discussion then. I mean, we're talking here about the right wing. We're hearing about far right all yeah. of the time. We're talking yeah. about what happened last Wednesday as well. I'm just wondering about your thoughts uh, on that because it seems to be acceptable now that you're better off to invite in all sides and discuss and have open discussion as opposed to single narratives, which you could blame us for in this country around several mm. different issues. Do we need to open up discussions in general, involve people, as opposed to marginalise people and out with unfortunate situations like what happened on Wednesday? Well, what happened, uh, going back to your opening remarks about Gript and the man that runs that platform, we need that view because it challenges our own view. So to be constantly challenged is in a much better uh, situation than to be unchallenged. If you're unchallenged, 
um, you will think that you are, in inverted commas, right, correct. It's a valid argument. You have the just on your side. What, what, what piqued me about the uh, exhibitions, let's call them, up on the opening day of, of the doll was I tried to find out, albeit on the internet, I tried to find out what the protest was about, and I couldn't find it anywhere. Nowhere. Now, that may be because it was uh, rather an incoherent uh, mm. protest on part, but it seemed to be something about immigration and something about something else. And mm. there were only, you know, you, you try and find out, well, how many people were there? Mm. How big a protest About was 200, this? I believe. Yeah, but yeah. that's hard. That's very difficult information to get. Mm -hmm. You can read column inches and you won't know any more than there were 13 arrests and it was, quote, disgraceful, unquote. So my argument is, if you're writing a piece or if you're broadcasting a piece, try and give as much data as you can because only data can inform opinion. Only data, well, it's not even opinion. If it's based on good quality data, your views, mm. then... They are facts, or as close to facts as you can But you can, can manipulate get. data into giving yeah. you all sorts of different answers as well. Well, we've just covered it. You, yeah. know, you can omit in, in, in the... In so the, that's not necessarily going to fix things either. You need no, a very it's, fair it's, press, and for that you need very fair journalism. To, and it's very hard to get that. To go back to your... your do I... All right, here is a person who wants more resources for... Uh, that young woman you have on the programme uh, who is <clears throat> um, encouraging government to spend more attention, money and time on aut autism services, mm. you would find another group. It's a small pot of money that we have. So you will find another group which says, well, here we have a cystic fibrosis group. So do you get every single medical group in and, and start some sort of a bun fight for funds? Because if you do, you'll get nowhere. You'll get people talking over each other. And that happens a lot. The, I think what we need to... We need to become more sceptical. We need to move to a position where when Rupert Murdoch decides to wind up the news of the world after the phone hacking scandal, mm -hmm. he did it. He, that man is very clever. He did it... In my opinion, he did it because... He knew they were wrong. He knew they were culpable. He knew it was criminal. And if he wound the whole thing up, they couldn't ask any questions. It wouldn't, the buck would never get to him to stop. Orte, much more, far more minor misdemeanors, not even, I don't know if, they, know if they were misdemeanors, but the fuss about Ryan Tubridy and who paid what and who knew what, and, that was more about. When, I think it was the DG or the Director General of, of RTE resigned, anyway, some senior person resigned, and all of a sudden you can't interview them. Mm. Well, that's nonsense. Of course you should interview them. Of course they should be called well, before they, the... They're, they're unwell, seemingly, and uh, there's documentation to, mm, to prove mm, that. Yeah. Mm, all right, well, mm. wait till they're well, but mm. let them know that they we will have our day in court. Mm. You know, and uh, Because, to me, that is the only way... You can form an... Yes, but, a, but an, you, you have GDPR now coming into this as well as another excuse as to why you don't have access to, to vital information. Yeah, I, I suppose, Fran, I'm going back <clears> to <throat> take nothing 
you read or hear at yeah. face value. Be sceptical. Ask for evidence. When, like I was watching the telly last night and there was an add-on for a product for pain relief. Mm. And it said up to 12 hours. Now, I know what went behind that because, I mean, I spent a lifetime working in the pharma business. And it, they would have done a study, maybe 300 patients, and the average period of pain relief might have been two hours. But one of them miraculously got 12 hours. And it's a distortion. And that's where they set the bar. It's a deliberate... It's not an untruth, but mm. it is a distortion of reality to s imply that if you take one of these tablets, you will get something like 12 hours relief. And that's what I'm complaining about. And that's what should be removed. The problem is... And I, I, I'm coming mm. in around to thinking, is this... to do, do, Let's take News Corp, Rupert Murdoch's empire. Does he right to uh, reflect endogenous prejudice in the population or does he right to make them prejudiced and sometimes i think brexit would never have happened if rupert murdoch had never existed yeah. Yeah. that 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 thing about straight bananas and all that Played nonsense fears of course yeah, yeah, what, yeah. A, a nonsense mm -hmm. you know to by by I think it was Boris Johnson who came out and said, oh, the EU just want us all to have straight bananas and straight cucumbers. And by implication, he was saying that everything else they do is, is similarly lunatic. So the message is question all. And I'd go along with that, except if you're going to look for your answers online, boy, are you going to be in trouble. If, if, I, was a, if I was arrested and somebody said, uh, did you murder so-and-so? So I say, yeah, all right, I did. But the next question is the seven, who else did you murder? And people stop at the first thing and don't go on to say, well, if he did one, maybe he's done loads. And I think, I think the believe, believe things if you have enough evidence, enough data. Mm. When Laura Burke of the EPA was defending the June water report produced by the EPA that under, underpinned the derogation uh, abandonment, if you call it that, she said, we generate data. We generate facts. Facts give information. Information gives intelligent decisions. Mm. And she was exactly right. She was exactly right. So when you've got facts... If somebody says, blah, 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 this claim, and mm. you say, well, are there any other claims to the contrary? And then you have them, Frank. Right. <laughs> but I'd have to say, and I must leave, leave it at this, but, I mean, e even if you're presented with data and if facts are emerging from that, I mean, that can be wrong. And in the past, we've seen those figures be well, wrong as well. We've well, seen, you know? well, again, what's the evidence for that? That's my question to you, Fran. What piece of well-conducted research if you call it that yeah. generation of data uh unmanipulated i mean big well, titles i, I big... remember al gore in the noughties coming out and saying all sorts of things based on data that he had at that time paul about climate change and what was going to happen by 2011 none of it happened it was mm. completely dismissed it came out afterwards that the data was incorrect or his data was incorrect. Well, I, I can't answer that because I don't know the data you're referring to, but if I was... Do you remember, it, he guaranteed the ice caps were going to be gone by 2011. Oh, no, all right, then. that's the timing. Based issue. on but, what he but had. But then you would never listen to the weather forecast, Fran, because if, if they said it, you might get two millimetres of rain today and it didn't, mm. that means that all of a sudden the right, weather forecast... You, you do take my point that it's not absolute. Nothing is absolute, is it? 
Uh, yeah, Tuesday follows Monday. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but the 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 climate is a movable thing. Mm. Um, you the weather is a movable right. thing. But I was just using that as an example of something that. Uh, but in a, in a in a if if you stand back and you say was Al Gore more right than he was wrong, he was more right. But he was incorrect. Technically, he got the date perhaps a bit premature, but in principle. The yeah. principle, again, I have to put my hand up and say I don't have the, the information, yeah. but I would say, knowing what I know of the man, I would say that he, these politicians are fed by advisors, you know, and that's always dodgy. <laughs> well, there there you go. Paul, always a pleasure. <laughs> no Thank you so much friend. for your time. Thank you Good so luck. much indeed. Good Paul luck. McCarthy, Paul's a regular contributor to the programme. Always a delight to have him in with us. We'll take a break back with more in just a moment. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. And you're welcome back to Tip Today. Mary joins me now. Mary, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Uh, really good to talk to you today, Mary. Thank you very much. You think, Mary that at this stage, with what you're seeing, there's nobody to vote for anymore. Well, that's quite true. It's a conversation I, I'm hearing quite a lot. And um, I, it's amazing how many people say, well, now, if there'll be an election next year, um, who will you vote for? Or they, so I might throw back the question to them. They say, we have nobody to vote for. Um, people that um, we used to always represent us, they have um, let us down, and our value system and our our um, they have a lot of grievances. It's not necessarily only the value system. Our value system is very important. But now I will give you a list of our own experience here. We're farmers. Mm. I'm we're retired now, and um, I feel you see you had that um, last week that demonstration at the doors, yes. whatever one would like to call it. It does. Um, waking us up to the dangers that democracy could be um, under threat. Now, democracy is a very, very important form of government, but democracy has to be taken care of, mm -hmm. and we have to nurture it. But when people feel disenfranchised, they get frustrated, and they take to the streets, and they can become very unreasonable. And um, as happened last week, now, I don't know what that was about. It's a pity that, um, that it wasn't analysed a little bit better, but anyhow... Yeah, it well, it, it seems to be, I mean, from the, from the heckling, Mary, it seems to be about immigration, it seems to be about trans issues, it seems to be about health and, uh, you know, housing, all, all of the usual topics that, you know, people would be concerned about, I suppose. Yes, well then... All these, those people should have been listened to. They should have been asked about their concerns. They will become more frustrated and, um, because they don't seem to matter. Their opinions don't matter. Mm. Now, we're in um, the business of farming, and people in business in general, we're being strangled with red tape and form filling. But the worst part is trying to communicate with relative departments. Phones are not being answered. Mm. Emails are not being answered. Messages not replied to. In the end, people give up, and the consequences can be hefty fines, and this has to stop. Now, state bodies, county councils, government departments, 
Irish water now, Ishka. Ishka. Mm-hmm. Ishka are faceless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are faceless, adding greatly to the frustration of people. So, really, um, I would consider that a huge review has to be taken of the way we treat people and treat their concerns. Mm-hmm. But do you think, will anybody listen to you? Um, no, well, this is what's happening. Yeah. They're not listening. And as I say, the frustration, I know somebody who was trying to get in contact with a particular council in Dublin. Mm. He phoned, he held on to his phone for an hour, an hour and 20 minutes it was ringing for. So he didn't turn off the phone. He hopped in his car and went to the relative office. Um, having been misdirected to different offices, he eventually found the proper one, did his business, and said to the girl who attended to him, do you hear that phone ringing in the background? And she said, yes. Well, he said, that will stop immediately now. Listen. And it did. He said, that's my phone. Wow. And it was on almost three hours. And there was no hope of anybody picking no. up that? Or... No, no, no. Now, that's not an isolated case. It's happening here very, very often. Nobody has time to sit, and particularly farmers. My God, they're under so much pressure. And they're, they're not being respected at all. Now, the local tagus officers, I have to exempt, they're very good. Mm. But, um, and they're doing their best. I think they're getting a bit frustrated as well. But I shouldn't be speaking for them. But um, they, the, people, the people are getting very, very frustrated. And now, you, you made a very interesting point in uh, the correspondence you had with us, Mary, because you said if they don't sort this or do something about this, it will create a vacuum. And the danger there is that vacuum will be filled by, as you say, what happened, or the likes of what happened absolutely. last Wednesday. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, people have general... They're really at their wit's ends. A lot of people are, are, are at their wit's ends. Now, um, I know here, if the electricity is off for, if electricity is off for an hour, I'm lost. I often thought, if I was sleeping rough... Now, I know it's, we can't... Um, it's not everybody's fault that everybody is sleeping um, roughly and that. You know, there's so much you can do and so much that you neglect. But um, just think of what people are going through. Refugees coming in after terrible, terrible journeys and think that nowhere for them to go. Um, go from A to B in Dublin, no, no hope there. And they're tired, they're worn out. It's not good enough. And a lot of people are very concerned, really, about what's going on. There's nobody in charge. That's really what it seems. We do everything. We make laws, we don't enforce them. Now, something very disturbing to our democracy I heard yesterday, and that is that um, policemen, they're recruiting policemen now up to the age of 50 years of age, Mm -hmm. which shows that nobody wants to join the guards. Yeah, very few. Yeah, yeah, why why don't they want to join the guards? Because the guards are coming out at the... They're coming out as the criminals, and the criminals are walking free. Of course. I mean, when you hear the difficulties of being a guard now... ...and and the kind of pay levels and all of that, you you can understand, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And why do you think that's a threat, particularly to our democracy? Because people now... um, Nowadays, with mobile phones, instant communication, you can actually um, get an army together in a matter of hours... It's not like before, you know. Yeah. You would have to um, set all your um, all your formation over months yeah. and maybe a year. And that. Yeah, you can have but a flash mob in, in, in no time. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, in no time. And it's actually... People would need to be aware 
that we will have to mind our democracy. And do you think there's much more to come then of what we saw last Wednesday? I hope not, but I fear there might be. Yeah. I certainly hope not. And, you know, it's a time in Ireland when we're an extremely wealthy country. Mm. People have, most people are in employment. You know, it's a good time. But still, it's amazing how many people are in dire straits. Now, another thing that hurt me a lot last week was the case of Temple Street. Yes. Now, I've been watching um, television programmes over the years with these poor parents on their knees begging to have their children looked after. Their operations have been delayed. They've been postponed for another six months, postponed for another six months. The children are in pain. The condition is worsening. And now, see the mess we're in. You know, those people should have been listened to. And they're in the health, which cost us $22 billion, I understand, last mm. year. Mm. Um, we shouldn't, that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen. And we're looking at an overrun of one billion now in the department, oh, I heard. Uh, which is just uh, incredible. I Mary, I must, I must leave it there. But you're making some interesting points as always, Mary. And thank you, thank you for coming on with us today. Thank you. Good morning to you. How do you feel about that? Oh eight three three double one double three double one. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip FM proudly presents the highly anticipated return of the Best of Tip Awards 2023. Now this autumn will shine a light on the unsung heroes of County Tipperary, the businesses that are the lifeblood of our communities. For more on this, I'm glad to be joined by our Programme Director, Stephen Keogh, and by Mary Ryan, who is Senior Enterprise Development Officer. Good morning to you both, and thanks for coming on with us today. Morning. Uh, Stephen, can I go to you first of all, and uh, will you just outline the um, categories for us? The categories, I sure will, Fran. There are 15 categories in total. Well, one is Local Hero, which uh, we, we uh, had uh, last year. Cara Darmody, of course, uh, winning last year, a Local Hero. So 14 uh, after that. Uh, the categories are Barbers, Beauty Salon, Breakfast Roll, Butchers, Coffee, Creche, which has been introduced this year, Gym, Hairdresser, Ladies Boutique, Menswear, Pub, Restaurant, Sports Club, and takeaway and then local hero uh, added in there so the nominations are just about to open in fact i think our website has just gone live isn't that fantastic now just to, to have a look back at last year Stephen, i mean it was an amazing success and uh, what a night it was in the end as well Super night in the Anor Hotel in uh, Thurlis, and uh, that's where we're going back again to this year. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned last year the, the battles and the social media battles in particular. There was a, a lot of campaigns, yeah. and we, we certainly encourage that. It's one nomination uh, per person, uh, so you nominate. The, I'll, I'll just go through what you have to do. Um, first of all, you go on our website, you, you click on the nomination page, and then there are 15 boxes, and you, you nominate, say, for instance, Best Barber. You, you write in uh, who you would like to nominate. So I think... It's important to stress uh, spelling um, and just to get the exact name of the, the business. 
um, because there can be a few variations. I mean, just looking at, uh, I think last year, for instance, uh, there was uh, in the butcher category that there's Martin O'Dwyer Family Butchers in Cashel and there's Paddy O'Dwyer Quality Meats in Cashel and uh, both uh, separate and uh, both were in fact nominated. Both uh, made it into mm. the top five last year and uh, it's just, you know, with the two O'Dwyers there obviously and, and, and there's a lot of examples like that where yes. it's very, uh, you know, p- precise to just get, to try and get the, I think the best thing to do is to go on their social media site first, see what they use and then maybe copy that and uh, put it into the nomination. So, so we we do that, and uh, we're off, as you say, to the honour. Then on the when is it? The, the date is the twenty fourth of October. So, do you want me to go through the tie the timeline actually, Fran? Yeah, as, be, as I say, nominations are just be, open now. Yes, it would be. Sorry, there's a bit of a delay on our line here, but yeah, sure. Just go through what people can look forward to, Stephen. Yeah. Okay, so the, uh, we're open now until Friday the 6th of October. So that gives you just under the two weeks to nominate. So you nominate businesses that you want to win the Best of Tip Awards. And we close the nominations then at 5 o'clock on the Friday the 6th. And then on Monday the 9th of October, this day, two weeks, we will, throughout the day, our presenters will announce the shortlist in each category. So then, uh, once we've done that through the day, voting will open at 6 o'clock, this day, two weeks, and it will remain open until Friday the 20th of October. Th- at that stage, you'll be listed off the businesses and you will vote for each uh, one, whichever one you want, in each particular category. The voting will then close on Friday the, or sorry, yeah, on Friday the 20th, and then we'll be off to the honour on Tuesday the 24th of October. All right, brilliant stuff. And uh, I suppose the main thing to put out there is enter, 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 because this is a great opportunity for businesses, Stephen, isn't it? It's a super opportunity uh, for businesses to showcase uh, their worth yeah. and uh, for people to uh, show their appreciation uh, for for the local businesses in, in their in their town or wherever in the county. And um, we'd like to get a big spread as well right across Tipperary. I know last year there was certain places that didn't get nominated, and uh, we weren't criticised, but we were. You know, what? How come there's nobody from Ross Gray? Sure. And there wasn't uh, yeah. last year. There, there wasn't anyone from Ross Gray nominated. That wasn't necessarily our fault, but that was because there wasn't enough nomination. So I'm encouraging you, if you're listening in Ross Gray and you, you, you go into your local pub or your butcher or your hairdresser, please nominate them and get involved. And we want, to, uh, as I say, a good spread right across County Tipperary. All right. And that, of course, is tipfm.com. Let's go to Mary Ryan now. Mary, Senior Enterprise Development Officer. Good morning to you, Mary. Good morning, Fran. Good morning, Stephen. And uh, good, good to talk to you today, Mary. So tell me about the importance of uh, this, Mary, to businesses. I mean, how important is it? It's huge. I mean, last year, um, I think oh, there was about 800 businesses that were nominated for this. And, you know, I think all of us could get a sense of pride and excitement at the honour when the awards night happened. And you could feel how important it was for the businesses because it's given them you know, an opportunity to market their business. They're getting promotion on social media and and people are talking about the businesses. So it's very important. I mean, as Stephen said, you know, people really need to, to get behind this and push people on to nominate the businesses. Um, you know, businesses are struggling, Fran, Fran mm. we know that, and energy, energy costs are, are, are rising. But we have a, just something I wanted to mention, the Green for Business, which is two days consultancy for businesses and any of these businesses can avail of this and to kind of map out and look and see can they do any changes that could help with their 
reduction in costs. And then behind that, then coming in behind it, we have the energy efficiency grant of 5,000. So that will help then implement some of that plan. Like plans are great, but, you know, to have some support financially to actually implement some of those energy efficiencies, then that, that grant can help towards that. So, you know, it's, 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 it's really important. And, and, and with the local enterprise office, we're delighted to come in in partnership with TIPFM and Tipperary County Council as well. Um, you know, to promote and help and support because it's the lifeblood of every community in the county is, you know, the barbers, the salons, the creches, the gyms, everybody uses them. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, and, and the local enterprise office as well, as we said before, Fran, you know, we're there open to help and support and offer mentorship, offer training. Um, and actually, just even to mention, we have some really good ones, which would probably help, actually, you know, the, the categories to promote on social media. On the 28th of the 9th, we have a far, um, smartphone product photography workshop. And also on the 28th of the 9th, we have How AI Can Transform Your Business. So that's really becoming very topical. Isn't it just, yeah. Um, mm. You know, um, but, yeah, so, listen, the, the, the message is contact your local enterprise office and look for support. What, what about people starting up businesses, uh, Mary? What are you seeing out there? I mean, is there an appetite for that? There is, and, and, and actually we have the Start Your Own Business course, which is a very successful program yeah. as well, um, Fran, and that's kicking off actually on the 26th of September. There's three morning sessions there. Um, yeah, I mean businesses are struggling but still there's there's still an appetite to set up and start up um and it's it's not all about grant supports either you know if you're thinking of starting up a business really the important thing is to to have a plan and work out how you're going to finance that that new job or new place that you're going to open and know what the costs are and and that's where we can kind of come in behind the people to sit down with them and see right this is your plan but what are your costs and is it going to be financially viable to run the business? And I think, you know, they're the basic steps. And once they can show and demonstrate that they can actually, you know, do this, well, then, you know, we will help them and support them, as I said, through mentorship training um, and grant supports as well, if we can. I mean, there's a website grant as well, Fran, there for businesses to set up um, an e-commerce website. And if they've had that already, they can go and get a second one. So, so it's 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 tough times, but there's still appetite there to set up new businesses. We can see that around the towns. You know, there is there is shops opening, there is coffee coffee places opening. Um, so there's a need a need for it in the in the areas, and um, and course. it's great to see as well. And uh, supporting local enterprise, uh, Mary, it's it's so important. I mean, because it is a case of that if we don't support it, we're going to lose it, and uh, mm. it needs to happen, doesn't it? Absolutely. And actually, just even to mention, because you're talking about those businesses that we're talking about, um, the Network Ireland Tipperary branch, um, we have a good few finalists there from Tipperary at the National Awards on Friday in uh, Lawlers of Nace. So I want to wish um, all of those finalists from Tipperary the very best to look and hopefully they'll bring home a few national winners out of it. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, doing something like this, Fran, is... Um, is is exactly what's needed. It's really just highlighting those small businesses, but they're the important ones that actually, you know, every community needs. So, um, and, and and sometimes those businesses are kind of forgotten about. So last year, 
you know, 800 businesses. Um, and we knew the night of the awards that, you know, this was the start of something really big. And you could feel the excitement. Yes. And yeah. I think, you know, it was great. It was a great atmosphere. And, yeah, it's, yeah. it's something I think that will grow. And, of course, a wonderful networking opportunity as well, Mary. And as you know, in your role, that is so important too, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. And, yeah. and even on the night, I mean, um, last year I spoke to quite a few businesses that wouldn't necessarily have contacted us before. Sure. yeah. And I gave them our details, said, you know, get in touch um, and and arrange to, to have a meeting with us. And we all we all know the, the, the opportunities of networking. Um, I would say to any business, you know, get out there, get your name out there, use use this opportunity to promote your business and the social media. I mean, Stephen mentioned all of the, the battles, the social media battles last mm. year. Mm. Well, we want to see even more of them this year because... Um, you know, that's, that's what creates the, the, the buzz and, and the, the excitement, excitement of, of the course, awards. Of course yeah. it does indeed. Well, Mary, I'm sure we'll be chatting to you uh, on that journey between now and October 24th in the Anna. But thanks so much for coming on with us today. Thank you. And uh, thanks to our own Stephen there as well. And of course, uh, that kicks off right now. We're inviting you to play a very important role in honouring the exceptional businesses that make County Tipperary uh, truly special. And you can submit nominations on our website. That's tipfm dot com, which will recognise the contributions of local enterprises in those 15 categories that Stephen told us all about there. All right, news and information's on the way. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Welcome along to the second hour of Tip Today. 1800 938 007, our free phone number if you want to speak to Emma. And of course you can text in WhatsApp 083 Victorian Britain's celebrity preacher, the Irish-born Monsignor Thomas John Capel, hid a dark secret because behind his handsome looks, his uh, aristocratic friends and close ties to a couple of popes, he was a sexual predator and an exposure of vulnerable women. His uh, lustful encounters, his heavy drinking and his wild spending ended in humiliation, disgrace and suspension by Rome. Now, a book has been written about Monsignor Thomas John Capel called The Monsignor, and it's been written by former RTE newsreader Una O'Hagan and her late husband, Colin Keane, and I'm delighted to say that uh, Una is with me in studio. Good morning to you, Una. Good morning, friend. And you're very welcome. And first of all, condolences to you on the loss of Colin. We always mm-hmm. looked forward hugely to both of you coming here yeah, about yeah. your books and We stuff. would love it because we, yeah. we live, I still live in Ring and it was a lovely drive up and yeah. we'd always be chatting always look forward talking to you because first of all you you always read the books mm. and always gave an interesting interview. Mind you, one that you had to be on your toes for because <laughs> <laughs> you never knew what interesting detail you'd come up with. But well, yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. Well, it's we're, we're delighted you both enjoyed your, your trips here as well. A year and a half, I think, at the Yeah, January last year. Uh, I mean, it feels like yesterday, but um, I suppose it's something you have to get used to. But it's kind of the little things that you that come back. uh, Like there's a particular ad that Colm always thought was, you know, funny. And whenever it comes on the television, I kind of expect him to kind of come in from the kitchen going, oh, she's not walking that way again, is she? (laughs) 
<laughs> it was the particular so it's thing. The little things like it's that. Just yeah. the small little. And uh, is items. the publication bittersweet then, Una? Because uh, I suppose it's the the it's, final work between is. you both. It yeah. is. Yeah, it is bittersweet. And it's every time I look at the cover, I laugh to myself because we had it prepared. And we had a, a particular cover, which I never liked. And uh, I decided, I, I delayed a year in bringing this out, so I decided I'd get a new cover done. And uh, like Colm always liked to be in control of everything, so I don't think he would have approved of that. But when I there were two colours to go for. One was this bright kind of orange-red colour, and I could practically hear him cheering over my shoulder saying, yes, you did the right <laughs> thing, because he always loved bright colours. Yeah, it's interesting you would always question what his angle would be. Oh, absolutely. And he was very good at, uh, you know, I sound like some besotted, you know, wife or whatever, but he was terribly good at, you know, knowing what worked. Yes. Either in broadcast-wise, book-wise, visually, everything. He he had a good, uh, an excellent judgment. Yeah, he wore it very lightly, though, because I remember the first time I knew you were both coming here. I mean, I I knew his backstory and his Mm. huge experience in radio productions. Mm. Oh, God almighty, you know, coming into local radio, what will he be like? But, I mean, he he was so gracious. No, he loved local radio. Because local radio reaches in to areas that, you know, national broadcasters really don't get to. And Colm was all about that. He wanted to communicate to people. And he loved entertainment. If you're entertaining people, that was the best thing possible. He wasn't a po-faced producer at all. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, the book then, because what a remarkable story, Una. I mean, a remarkable man, even though extremely flawed and ruthless. And I was saying to you, possibly a psychopath. Is that pushing it too far? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'll give you a brief description of him. He was very handsome. He was very charismatic, incredibly intelligent. um, And yet behind all that, he was manipulative, ruthless, and I really don't think he had a conscience because he he exploited people, both financially, sexually, every way, who were good, good people, honest people, people who really looked up to him. And yet he never saw that he had done any wrong. Incredible. The story began in Ardmore. In Ardmore, believe yeah. it or not. 1836, he was born to a... His father was John Capel. He was a member of the Coast Guard stationed in Ardmore. And his mother was Mary Fitzgerald from nearby Whiting Bay, the daughter of a farmer. They had been married there the previous two or three years. <clears throat> and they... Uh, eventually, they moved following... Uh, Capel's father's job as in the Coast Guard around the south coast of England. But, excuse me, from very early on, it was clear that Capel was an exceptional young boy. And through his own hard work and the help of a lot of people, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps, got a good education and became vice principal of a teacher training college when he was only 20, which is incredible, and was ordained a priest when he was was 22 years of age. And um, he, it was all down to his own absolute brilliance. But with that brilliance, there was a flaw. And was there some early signs? I mean, there was a breakdown, for example. Uh, Now, you're the only person to actually 
um, highlight that. I think that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. When he was orta- ordained, now he had been working very hard because he was learning to be a teacher and training for the priesthood and teaching all at the same time. But he had, yes, he had a complete mental and physical breakdown, was sent to the south of France uh, to recover. And in fact, that's where he took off. He started up his own kind of um, mission. Yes. Uh, you know where he would sermonize this uh, in he he ended up in a place called Poe which was uh, where very rich uh, English aristocrats came to you know pass the the, the winter and uh, he was incredible not just at um, being a brilliant sermonizer but he would convert an awful lot of them to Catholicism this brought him to the attention of the Pope who made him a uh, monsignor yes and that was his great worth that to to the church he was the poster boy for yes. the church. If you consider, when he went back to England, he his boss was Cardinal Manning. Very nice man, very good, holy man, but very austere, mm. whereas Capel was the entire opposite. So he, he was the poster boy, yeah. Yes. The, the, being such a wonderful orator, and so, did that start? In, did he discover those skills in France? Or? No, he was very... Um, he honed them in mm, France, put yes. it that way. I mean, there's a description from an American journalist, a woman who's saying she's sitting there in the church, you know, with all the other, with the German princesses, with the other members of the aristocracy, and he's there and she's almost in tears, uh, you know, because of what he is saying. And he was very clever at, he was a great communicator. He would think up whatever the topic was he would come up with a few kind of themes on it he would write them down he would then burn that piece of paper and then he would he he would do it from memory but he also spoke in what was described as word pictures and you know as a broadcaster you want to evoke an image in people's minds that's the way you can you really make contact with people Um, and that's what he learned that's the skill that he honed in France and the other skill of course was playing the room there's a lovely description Mm -hmm. of him sashaying through crowds he was whispering in ears and he was dishing compliments and young women were were blushing the English women would blush yes. rosy red with delight. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't it? Because I can see that. That yeah. is so, so, so visual indeed. Mm-hmm. He did dispense with his Irishness, though, didn't he? He did. I mean, he, he, he never took really, on an English accent. He, he took on, oh, he was such a social climber. I'm yeah. sure you know people like that. But I do. this guy. <laughs> And they're not very nice. But anyway, he um, he never mentioned his Irish roots uh, when he was in England. He never mentioned his, you know, poverty-stricken background. Um, and he... he when he he managed to um, convert the richest man in the world at the time and for that he had to go to Oxford now he couldn't have spent more than a few months in Oxford but like the following year he was being spoken about as having the most pure Oxford accent I mean I don't know that turns my stomach I've never liked people who forget where they're from for sure you tell me about that conversion that you alluded to there because that was pivotal it was absolutely this is where his name was made Mm. it was a guy called the Marquis of Butte and he had been you know he had been questioning uh, his religious beliefs at the time for a long time and Capel managed to swoop in. He did this a lot. Sometimes a lot of other priests or people would have done the work. Capel would swoop in and get the credit and uh, when the conversion of, um, of the Marquis of Butte was announced there was absolute 
outrage in the British press. And this was because there was an awful lot of hostility to the Catholic Church at the time. And it was seen as being a perversion to convert to Catholicism. And Butte was called the noble pervert. This didn't... I know it's a terrible phrase, but this didn't affect either of them. A few months later, Capel headed off on the uh, on Butte's um, magnificent yacht called the Ladybird, and they travelled around the Mediterranean, uh, met the Pope. Oh, it was absolutely amazing. Wasn't it had a wonderful lifestyle. Tell me about the colleges and the schools, mm. because really, his failure began, I suppose. Where, where it did. It? I think he fancied himself a yeah. businessman. He always had idea, big ideas that would work in theory, but he never put in the work himself. He was usually off drinking, at the very least. And he set up a number of schools, the most important of which was a school for boys, which he wanted to be the Catholic Eton. But he didn't look after it. He left, the schools went to rack and mm. ruin. Um, there were various uh, complaints about what the sixth formers were up to, which were extremely serious. And yet, despite this, he was made then the rector of the first Catholic university in Britain, which folded a few years later, because yet again, uh, Capel neglected it, ran it into the ground. And you would think that the Catholic Church would be getting the hint at this stage, but no, they kept on, they, they, mm. they kept him in position. But how did he get, I mean, that home, that beautiful home that you described Cedar that he had Villa, in Ke Kensington, yeah. was it Kensington? Wasn't Kensington, it? yeah. yeah. Um, what, what, how did he get away? I mean, he had parties, he had, mm -hmm. I mean, and it was a non-going sort of a event. Oh, the Sunday uh, afternoon parties were yeah. legendary. I mean, you could hear the music, if there was music, you could hear it all around the neighbourhood. Um, it was extraordinary. I mean, first of all, how he could afford it. Uh, was something yes, else. Yes, because works of art adorned oh, yeah, the walls. Now, the works of art that looked like they were real works of art were, were fakes. They were knockoffs. Right, when right. When eventually he the went... Auction, yes. when, yeah, when he eventually yeah. went bankrupt for the equivalent of £3 million in today's money, uh, he didn't. they didn't get much, much right, back. Okay. But one of the interesting things on the list of, of items that had to be sold, because everything had to go, even his poor dog, Beppo, was put up for sale. But there were... 30 dozen bottles of wine put up for sale. That's 360 bottles. It's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? Um, tell me then about his downfall and it really, it, I mean, there is a Tipperary connection here. There is very much yeah. so. Will you tell me about There's that? There's a young woman called Mary Sturton and she was absolutely pivotal to his downfall. She was 23 when she met him. She came from, he was about 30, he was going on 39. She came from a, actually it was a Tipperary family. Her, her mother was from Tipperary, from uh, Broomfield, Bloomfield House. And her name was Catherine Scully. Um, now she had married, she had made a very good marriage and they lived on the Isle of Wight. Um, her husband was a very well-respected man. Unfortunately, Mary didn't get on with her mother at all. Her mother was extremely religious. And Mary ended up in, oh, she ended up in a mess. She'd had a brief affair that she hadn't really wanted but had been pursued by this guy. Anyway, ended up in isolation in Kensington, which is where Capel's base was. And it was her aunt, Mary Leahy, also from Tipperary, who introduced her to the Monsignor, who thought, you know, Mary could do, the, the, her niece could do with a bit of spiritual guidance. Right, but and he took advantage. He did. This he, is where you know. all her misery began, yes. according to Mary. He would call to her constantly. 
he would stay there an hour, an hour and a half. Um, and she was only about two minutes away from Cedar Villa. And th- she said this uh, in her lodgings, this is where all um, these acts of criminal intimacy uh, took place. And she, despite her isolation, despite her youth, she complained to Cardinal Manning. She actually went and spoke to him. And then, again, this wasn't the first complaint, but he did nothing about it, which reinforced Capel's behaviour, actually. And it was only about three or four years later, during which time Mary kept writing to her, to to Manning, um, that Manning eventually took, took some action. But there are two interesting. There's a lovely photograph of her in the book. I mean, she is such, she looks so sad in it. She really had a tough life. But when we were in the um, archives in London, we're all the, all the documents were kept in this uh, these boxes. And we reached into the bottom of the box and there was an envelope. We opened the envelope and out came this little photograph and a lock of Mary's hair wrapped oh in blue ribbon. And she had that kind of cherry, cherry gold blonde hair. And it was like it had been cut yesterday. So I, I really feel a kind of close connection with her because of that. He's, um, I mean, he was prepared as well to throw his many lovers under the bus to ma- maintain his position. And when he came mm-hmm. before the, 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 the cardinal and everything, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he lies, totally. fabrication, yeah, nothing yeah, was a problem. He had no shame. He had no shame. And of course, he attacked uh, the women yeah. uh, who, who he had had affairs with. You know, they were mad. Um, they were drunks. Yeah. They took drugs. They were immoral. Um, one of them was a convert, so she couldn't be believed. Another was a divorcee, so definitely you couldn't believe a word she said. There was only one young woman who I really, really like, yes. which is Lucy Stevens, who was the youngest of them all, only about 20, 21. Really good looking uh, woman whom Capel had tried it on with. Mm. Oh, de- determined as ever, but never made any progress. And she actually turned up, he was conducting his own defence because he was so brazen. So she had to face him and his questioning. Not a bother on her, she wasn't frightened of him, but he was frightened of her. And he had very good reason to be as well. He was a drunkard, Una, of unbelievable sort of magnitude. Oh yeah, Yeah. I mean the stories that go around... In a way, one of the best and the funniest stories is when he was actually in America which I love. He was in New York and he was invited to be a guest of honour at the uh, banquet, a gala banquet for the New York police inspectors and superintendents. So all the great and good were there, about 200 um, guests thereabouts. They drank 600 bottles of wine between them. Good night was had by all, particularly Capel, because an eyewitness at the event, wrote to Cardinal McCluskey of New York and said he had never seen anybody so drunk in his life, that Capel was absolutely paralysed with the drink. So Capel realised he had to apologise for his behaviour and he blamed it all on the smoke. He said the smoke had always had an effect on him, made him dizzy, couldn't remember what he, had, uh, what he was going to say and uh, 
I don't think the boys in New York in the hierarchy in the Catholic Church were obsessed. I I have to mention the pious ladies before we we speak about America because he surrounded himself with this group of women who were so loyal to him. They were utterly loyal to him in every way. Uh, They were known in Kensington as the pious ladies. Mm. You know, Cardinal Manning referred to them as the pious ladies. They supported him in everything he did. So they... uh, they did his correspondence for him. Uh, when the schools began to fall apart and there were very few teachers, they stood in. They looked after the students, made food for them. They copied out pamphlets, anything and everything that he wanted done to be able to make his life run smoothly, they did. And also financially, they contributed, whether they wanted to mm. or not. And then he took advantage he took some of that oh, yes. turned against him as well. Mm. By the way, we're, we're skirting through the woods an awful lot more stories and, and uh, detail in there as well. He had, I mean, the church literally moved him on then because, you know, yeah. I mean, he yeah. was disgraced, he was... But when he appeared in America, it was like a, a rebirth, wasn't it? It was, but I mean, he had no... If you can think of the person... Like, I look back in my working career and I th- think of people who would have got away with stuff and mm. you'd stand back and you go, how did they do yes, that? Yeah. Well, Cable was the same. You know, Cable was found guilty, as you say, in... Uh, but he, he wasn't found guilty. He was found not guilty but not innocent. Yes, yeah. So that gave him a, a little bit of leeway, but I don't think that would have stopped him. No, he arrived in America. He yeah. organised a huge... Like, he wasn't allowed to act, really, as a priest, but that didn't stop him. He had to make his, his money, his way financially, so he just organised a huge series mm. of lectures from uh, from the East Coast But it was like West a rock Coast. and roll tour, wasn't it? I it mean. was. There was a great description of one particular event in an enormous uh, auditorium in which the journalist who was there um, described how all the women, and like there were hundreds of women, had their op- opera glasses trained on the Monsignor the entire time. You know, he had it. Yes. Whatever the, else you the say The original about Father him, Trendy, I suppose, <laughs> oh, yeah, in, in, in some sort yeah. of a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was incredible, though, because mm-hmm. if you consider what, you know, we can loosely describe as a liberal lifestyle, Luna, the sermons were very conservative. Mm-hmm. And I think that might have been part of his downfall then, in particularly in the West Coast of uh, Absolutely. Like, yeah. for example, in California, well, there was a fair amount of hostility to him in America because... They, they did, they kind of, well, who does he think he mm, is coming mm. here? And he kind of played into that, which he shouldn't have. But yeah, in California, one of the topics, um, one of his favourite lectures was the rights of women. Now, don't forget, California had a huge women's rights movement that was extra. I mean, it was long before the vote was ever given or thought of or whatever. They were really advanced in in California and uh, Californian women were very outspoken. But yeah, like, you know, the rights of women, according to him, they didn't have any. That didn't go down well. I, I can well imagine that indeed. Um, can you briefly tell me about how he how it ended up for him? Because again, he ended up with patronage, I suppose. He did the, on, on until the the day he died. Well, there's one story that I, I'm I'm always telling because I just think it's so funny. There's a woman called Alice Bowler, very wealthy in Cincinnati, falls under his spell, gives him a thousand dollar check for the Pope's charity, by the way, Peter's Pence. In those days. And in America in particular, the cheque when you issued it would come back from wherever it was cashed. And she discovered that it had been cashed in Tiffany's, the jewellers in New York. 
And then she decides, oh, well, I'll find out what exactly the Monsignor spent the money on. And it was a diamond bracelet. So, you know, he, he just, he continued his yeah, yeah. exploits uh, all the way across America. But it all began to fall apart. After about three years, there was just too much scandal. But luckily for the Monsignor, he fell on his feet. He met up with a, a woman that he had known before he'd met in Rome. Uh, she was a wealthy divorcee. He bumped into her on the street. He I bumped think, into he? her yeah. on the street yeah. after coming out of the most expensive hotel <laughs> in San Francisco. I, I mean, he just never slummed it. Yeah. He just yeah. he never did. He had no he had no idea of how the other half lived, um, whether he could pay for it or not. And he ended up living with her for twenty five years, the last twenty five years yeah. of his life on her ranch. If we, I, I, I'm almost ashamed to say I kind of felt a little bit sorry for him when you described you know how he turned out in terms of his looks were all gone because oh, yeah. he's drinking I and know, he, I know, know. It, it, so did I I'm glad you said that yeah. because I felt a bit guilty I mean he was described as living the life of a disappointed man yes. he was once seen as you know being dressed up in kind of cowboy gear he would occasionally be seen in a local Catholic church where he'd be doing the stations you know it was sad uh, he must have looked back on his life and I'd say he was probably wondering where he went wrong I'd say he still couldn't figure it out. And that's interesting. Was there, or do you know, was there any sense of remorse, for example? Did he? No. No, there was never that. Not in anything that we came across. He was always, he was up, he was a hundred out of a hundred when he was defending himself. Even in California, when there were bishops there giving out about him, he was still outraged that he his behaviour could ever be questioned. Right, and any sense Even of, though he knew he had done all this. It's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? And any sense of a faith, for example, you know? Not really. Not really. No, no, no I, I think... No, yeah. and yet, even though he learned his faith from his mother, uh, his mother seemed to have been a very good, very, you know, strong-minded, good Irish Catholic, put it that way. Yes. And it was uh, he said that he inherited his zeal and his enthusiasm for her. But no, he had a very shallow understanding of religion and theology, which was remarked upon in America in particular, because they take their religion very seriously there. Yes. A little yeah. bit of pomp and ceremony to his, his funeral, though. Oh, I love that, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, the, the Catholic Church was very lucky because he happened to die in the Archbishop's house. I mean, it would have been very embarrassing if he died elsewhere. But uh, the... Bishop, who was from Ireland, uh, gave him, you know, the full trappings due to a Monsignor. And um, he was even buried, I love this detail, in a purple coffin. Yes, I know. And the other thing, from beyond the grave, when the news ended up in Kensington, in London, it was announced that Monsignor Capel, the prelate in charge of the Catholic Church of Northern California, had died. It was a lie. You know, I mean, he was still spinning the information, everything to do with him from beyond the grave. He, he was amazing. incorrigible. Why would I uh, would I not have heard of him, Una? A Why? very good reason. It was kept yeah. secret by was the it? Catholic yeah. Church, absolutely, particularly in Westminster. And when, how, did, how did you both hear, hear about him? <laughs> we uh, were researching, believe it or not, our book on Lourdes. And Monsignor Capel actually met St. Bernadette when he was in Poe. And he was so arrogant. Like, 
Bernadette was a lovely young girl, a peasant girl. She spoke the local dialect. Her French wasn't terribly good, but Capel made a point of criticising her French. He was so arrogant. But that's how we came across him. And then we did a little bit of research and kept seeing, you know, oh, his mysterious fall from grace and, you know, a bit of women were kind of mentioned and then his... um, his uh, bankruptcy and we thought there's got to be a story here and there was you know and what a story it was indeed uh, could I finally mention it because there's a Coco Chanel I think as well which I love isn't it know? incredible yeah, yeah. if you know anything like I love Coco Chanel yeah. I love I, I've never bought anything of her I couldn't afford it but I love her story yeah. and there was a man who was very important in her life her her the love of her life, who was called Boy Capel. And that was the Monsignor's nephew. And he was the man who set her up in business, gave her the money to start her business. And he also inspired her uh, with his, you know, those masculine kind of clothes that she came up with, the use of tweeds and all that kind of material. There's a beautiful photograph, if you look it up on the internet, of a boy capel leaning on a mantelpiece. And he just, the jacket is just to die for. Style. Style. But um, typical of the capels, if we can, you know, generalise like that, he went and married the daughter of a lord, because he was a social climber. He, uh, there was no way he was going to marry, you know, poor little Coco Chanel. And he, they continued their affair until he died in an accident. But if you go to Coco Chanel's apartment, which is kept as is in Paris, there on the mantelpiece is a bust of the Monsignor, yes. which he had in his cedar villa house in Kensington. Incredible altogether. The book is just wonderful. I would highly recommend it, Una. It's a beautiful read. I I couldn't put it down. It's in all all of the usual books. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And believe it or not, I was in Eason in the showgrounds and it's there. I was doing that real author thing of looking around. They got it, they got it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember the ad on telly? Uh, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But why wouldn't they have it? It's a marvellous read. It's called The Monsignor and uh, it's in all good bookstores. You can buy it online, I presume, as well. Una, lovely to see you again. And you again. Thank you very much indeed. 10.34 right now. Back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Time now for our global politics uh, slot and uh, glad to be joined as always by politics and economics student uh, at Trinity, Thomas Conway. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. And uh, good to see you. We're going to begin with uh, President Zelensky because he did address the UN uh, Assembly. Um, what did he have to say? Well, in, to put it in essence, evil cannot be trusted, which is putting it pretty bluntly, putting it pretty starkly, really, uh, one has to say. He made a passionate speech to the UN General Assembly last week. And there are, I suppose, the background to this is there are all these questions around the UN and whether it's legitimate, whether it's viable, because obviously you have certain countries with veto powers. Uh, You had certain non-attendances of this event. Rishi Sunak wasn't there. Uh, Emmanuel Macron wasn't there, nor was Xi Jinping, nor was... Uh, Vladimir Putin, of course. So a question over the the legitimacy or the credibility Mm. of the UN as an institution. But Zelensky in his speech didn't hold back. Uh, He went for it, as they say, and he condemned Russia outright. He condemned the war in its totality. 
uh, and pushed other Western powers to keep supplying Ukraine with weapons, mm. keep that steady stream of weapons uh, being supplied to Ukraine, which he deems essential, uh, which is yes. essential, I guess, for Ukraine's survival. And, and making the point that uh, Ukraine will continue with this war to to the bitter end. Maybe, yeah, essentially, okay. essentially. And I mean, we, we've had various developments in the war, I suppose, to date. The most recent being the Ukrainian counter-offensive, which hasn't really yielded the gains that, that it may have been envisaged in the first place. It's kind of failed to, to take hold. I think the Russian positions in Russian-occupied regions are very well fortified. They're very well dug in, in other words, uh, and their lines are very hard to penetrate. But Zelensky has made, remained firm. He's remained adamant. He says, you know, we're going to sweep these Russian forces out of the country, like it or not, and that's going to be, uh, that's our ultimate objective, that's our ultimate goal. And until we, until such a time as we achieve that, uh, then there will be no concessions on the negotiating table, which is an interesting part. It's an interesting mm. side to take. I'm not sure about it myself. I can see you're looking sceptically across at me. Just a little bit, because I just don't happen to think that enough people are, are talking peace here, because, um, you know, as these addresses to the UN go on, as Zelensky goes all around the world, and he's it's fine for him to do so but young men and it's largely young men are dying every single day in this essentially know? essentially and that is true and I think there are, there are two ways of looking at this so mm. one way is that you have one sovereign country invading another invading its territory and how can you condone that how is it's reprehensible well, nobody's condoning that I mean yeah. I, I don't think anybody can no I, I don't yeah. I don't think so yes. the other side of it is this is the reality of global politics this is the reality of international relations in the world we live in in Invasions do happen. They haven't happened for a while, but this is the cold, hard reality of war. And in order for peace to be achieved, negotiators have to come to the table and have to iron out some kind of solution. And that is, I think, where uh, where Zelensky has been reluctant. He really is forthright. He really is adamant, absolutely adamant, mm. uh, that Ukraine be... But at uh, what stage will other countries tire of supporting Ukraine, particularly where the offensive is concerned, and and that not working, what will they and are they beginning? To I tire think they're already. Be, I think there's an element of Ukraine fatigue yes. setting in in certain parts among certain leaders. I mean, we we we've had skeptics from the outset. President Emmanuel Macron of France was highly skeptical in the beginning. He mm. tried to negotiate with Vladimir Putin. That kind of fell through. Uh, eventually, mm. he's now one of Ukraine's foremost supporters. But there is a frustration on the part of the West. You see over the weekend Poland uh, has refused yes. to send certain weapons to Ukraine Poland one of, being one of the prime allies of Ukraine up to now uh, we had Zelensky touching down in Shannon Airport over the weekend to meet the Sudanese leader pleading for help from the global south so you know a lot of scepticism amongst southern nations the poorer nations developing nations of the world about this war they see it rather differently than the vantage point of the west uh, so you have a lot of questions there a lot of questions that need answers and and I, I find it intriguing myself I wonder how long it can go on like this I wonder how long we can have forces fighting in sort of a stalemate battle as you say soldiers being killed civilians being killed without an end in sight it is it's going to be interesting and now this talk from certain uh, people certainly in, in America but d demanding largely that uh, Zelensky would hold elections 
even though it's wartime. Now, he's saying, how can you hold uh, an election properly during wartime? But uh, that's an interesting It's an intriguing well, scenario to think. Yeah. I mean, how do you hold an election during wartime? Let's remember, Ukraine is effectively under martial law yeah. now at this stage. All men over the age of 18 and under the age of 65 are obliged to fight in the army unless they have, they have other reasons. The country is... Uh, has been broken apart, in, is fragmented to a certain extent. Okay, some areas have have come back to life in uh, in recent day, in recent months and weeks, but you know, still a very very difficult situation on the ground. The logistics of actually holding an election would be next to near impossible, I mm. think. But Zelensky is firmly against it, as you say. Uh, yeah. He fears the effect it would probably have on solidarity for him and well, support for him. Well, that's the point too, isn't it? Because naturally enough, when you have an election, you're going to have opposing views. And you could see the country split down the middle, uh, I suppose. And that's you know? indeed yeah. the case. And he is a politician. He does care about his time in office, even if he is a wartime president or a wartime president. Uh, you know, he still has to rely on people's votes. Uh, and he would be wary, I guess, of any challengers to him. So it's a really intriguing scenario. It's one that's going to play out over the following months and weeks. On the Russian side of it, I can't see anything changing much. I think they will continue to... Uh, hold their ground in in parts of Russian occupied Ukraine. Uh, it's a very difficult one to 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 predict, isn't it? Indeed. Now, with all that happened last week uh, in uh, Dublin, for instance, there was much talk about the rights and the hard rights and uh, all of that. But you reckon a real threat from Europe's hard right? Yeah, a real threat from Europe's hard right. And and you, you know, I suppose what happened the do- outside the door last Wednesday, the far right protesters was was frightening to a certain degree. Some some people argue we've made too much of it. Uh, others feel we haven't made enough of it. But at the end of the day, it was a set of far-right agitators agitating outside the gates of our national parliament. But the reality is, Fran, that across much of Europe, there is a new tidal wave of far-right movements sweeping the continent. We only have to look as far as Italy, in which the Giorgio Maloney, the uh, the Italian prime minister, the first effectively far-right prime minister since Benito Mussolini, the first leader of that country, uh, and her Brothers of Italy party, uh, which would be a, mm. a, a well-known far-right faction. Now, they haven't proved to be as, we'll say, uh, dramatic in power as some might have anticipated. They've moderated their stances slightly, but they're still a far-right party. There are still very staunch far-right views there, and it's similar across much of Europe in different places. In the Spanish general election, we had a party, Vox, far-right themselves, in Germany, support for the alternative for Deutschland party has skyrocketed. They're now the second largest party in the country behind the Christian Democrats, which is worrying in itself. And and all the ingredients there that we've seen uh, in history as well for the rise of the right, when you think of, you know, inflation, immigration. Uh, Absolutely. You have all these issues yeah. converging together, all the ingredients, as you say, and sowing the seeds for a... For a movement, and that yes. is that is what these far right movements are designed to do. Now, is there an argument to be made that we might be worrying too much because there's been sur- surges of of the right over the last few decades? Yeah, and we've seen them in the past. They they have occurred. There was one in the 2000s, the early 2000s in mm. Switzerland. Uh, you had kind of. Uh, 
uh, a far-right party came to power. Then we had the European migration crisis in and around 2015. Angela Merkel allowing some one million migrants into the country. It fueled that alternative for Deutschland party, which I just mentioned there. That was effectively the inception of that party and it drove the growth of it uh, mm. in recent years. We had Brexit and a lot of parties, a lot of far-right parties across Europe have learned lessons from Brexit. They've learned that, you know, exiting the European Union isn't necessarily the best option on the table for them at this point in time. Exiting the euro currency, that they may have to take a softer line in Europe. And that is what has differentiated uh, these modern-day far-right parties from even their predecessors just a few years ago. They're a little bit more nuanced in their views. They're slightly more moderate. They're still far-right in essence, uh, but they have a slightly different outlook in terms of certain issues, in terms of maybe the European Union and their place That's within interesting. it. interesting. And uh, Le Pen, I suppose, a great example. Le Pen, of, a great of, example. Of, of that. Uh, you make a very interesting point, and it really had me thinking, which is that if you take centrist parties, then what should they do? But you're talking about the notion of involving the right. It looks you to know, be the only way. Yeah. It looks to be the only way because if you think about it, the only way in which for these parties to moderate is for, for them to have a taste of governance, a taste of the pressures uh, and the reality, pitfalls, of, politics, the reality yeah. of politics, the real yeah. politic yeah. of of government and incorporating them into government, incorporating them into the political system is the only way that can be achieved. And in various countries, it has sort of worked. Like we look at Italy and we look at Giorgio Maloney, the Prime Minister and the Brothers of Italy Party, they've had to roll back on some of their core promises because just the stark realities of governing there, they realise that they don't have the budget to finance such expenditure measures. Uh, they don't have the the means to make certain uh, reforms and proposals as they might have uh, sought prior to the election. So I think that is the, the key the key message here is for centrist parties, the likes of, we'll say, the Social Democrats in Germany, for instance, uh, even parties in this country, to look towards the far-right fringes and say, well, look, you know, we're opening our doors here. We need, to, we need to invite you in for reforms and discussion. We need to actively discuss what means we can use to... Uh, yeah. Uh, to it's, it's a very interesting take, Thomas, because it does reflect what some of our listeners are saying to us here, that, you know, if you, if you have single narratives and if you cast people aside and call them monstrous and all of that, you create a vacuum and that vacuum will be filled then by... You know, well, fundamentally, it alienates people. Yes, you alienate does, yeah. and you ostracise people and that will drive them <clears> further <throat> towards the margins. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And that is the reality. That has happened in much of Europe across the past decade. And I think centrist parties are slowly learning the lessons from that. Now, whether they've learned them enough remains to be seen. We have European Parliament elections next year. They will be crucial, yeah. absolutely crucial in determining the future trajectory of the far right in Europe and I suppose of other parties, the far left and centrist parties in Europe as well. So really we await them with, with bated breath. It, huge expectation behind those elections. We ask you to have a look at a historic figure for us every week and uh, this week it's uh, somebody very special I suppose from history. Yeah, A very special guy, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. I mean one of the most inspirational orators I think in of certainly of his generation of, of all time we may as well say he was his speech his I have a dream speech uh, in Washington of course garner, has garnered millions mm. of views 
has transfixed people for, for decades. It's still an inspiration. It's still, and I watched it again last week and it is delivered with such poise and such conviction and passion. It is an incredible act uh, oratory uh, or act of, of speech making and really we can learn a lot from it but there was so much more to Martin Luther King than just his oratorical ability. Give, give us some of the background. He's, so he was born January 15, 1929. He was an American Baptist minister, an activist, a political fo- uh, philosopher, one of the most prominent leaders of the civil rights movement from 1955 until his assassination in 1968. He was a black church leader and the son of an early civil rights rights activist, Martin Luther King Jr. And I guess he was kind of honed or reared in that culture, reared in that culture of activism and of preaching and of uh, the Baptist ministry, which he, he would eventually become a Baptist minister. And I suppose honed his his rhetorical skills speaking in churches, speaking at the pulpit uh, to his co- uh, to his parishioners or to, to congregations, large congregations of people. That was the kind of, the essence, the beginning of his political career. His political career would then grow. He would participate in civil rights marches. He would lead the march on Selma uh, and various US cities in the fight for civil rights. And what struck me really most of all, Fran, was just his incredible bravery. I mean, his bravery to to go up against this, the Jim Crow laws, which were these pieces of legislation in the United States, which effectively uh, marginalised the black community, were, were racist against the black community. He opposed them. He, he stood his ground, he stood firm and he tried to battle against them and it, it took incredible valour, incredible yes. courage for him to do so. And in the in the way that Gandhi did, I suppose, because I know Gandhi was a, a, a an inspiration for him. Yeah, and he had many inspirational figures. He cites Gandhi as one of them because of the peaceful notion, yes. the, the notion of <clears throat> achieving change through peace. And I think that bit, that part of Martin Luther King was was core, was essential. Mm. And, you know, it followed in the, he's followed in the footsteps of many civil rights leaders, not not just Gandhi, but certainly his commitment to peace and peaceful ideals was at the core of his ideology. And that's why it was such a, it was mm. such a shame that he was assassinated in what, in 1968. It came yes. at such a period of turbulence for the United States. Dad and I just discussing it on the way down. Robert Kennedy would soon, uh, would soon, would die soon after. Another great leader, another great civil rights activist in his own right. Uh, I recall there's anecdotes of Robert Kennedy, you know, giving speeches on the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated, pleading with people not to go out rioting, not to go out on the streets because of their commitment to peace and peaceful ideals. Uh, and that was that was the way it was back then. He broadened out uh, his battles as well uh, because, of course, Vietnam. Vietnam became something that he absolutely, absolutely. Against. The Vietnam yes. War, a huge yeah. issue at that point in time in American life, and of course he didn't do all this. I mean, there were consequences to this. He was under the investigation of the FBI of J. Edgar Hoover in the Federal Bureau of Investigation, under huge investigation from them, uh, under pressure from many circles within the US government and outside the US government. So he mm. had to balance all these things. He was effectively a man with a bounty on his head, Fran, for, to a certain degree. And obviously the assassination demonstrated that in the end. But he, he, yeah, he was an activist against the war in Vietnam, calling for peace there, calling for peace in various other conflicts across the globe. A really, really inspirational character. And a man, I think, a man, I think, who who was before his time in terms of his 
his ability to see what society could be like when peace reigns supreme. For sure, and you couldn't help but speculate, I suppose, if he were to live, I mean, what he would have done, you know. And that is that yeah. is the question, and yeah. we can say the same for Robert Kennedy, we can say the same for John F. Kennedy. You know, would the world have been a very different place? Might we be standing, sitting here now in a very different space to where we actually are? You know, would mm. war is raging across the planet? Uh, had these characters been allowed to live, been allowed to fulfil fulfil their destiny, so to speak, it it's might have been very different. Interesting. Uh, what should we look out for over the next uh, few days? So lots of things happening. India and Canada in the middle of a huge diplomatic route. Justin Trudeau, I read a piece on him yesterday. He's in big trouble. Uh, he's losing support at home and there is now this row which has evolved over the past week which has emanated from the the assassination essentially of a Sikh Indian citizen, a Sikh, a branch of uh, a branch of Hinduism, mm. uh, supposed to be perpetrated by Indian authorities in Canada. Uh, Canada has accused India of directly being involved or being implicated in this assassination, which is a huge wow. charge to make. Now, other countries haven't exactly rolled in behind Canada and Mr. Trudeau on this. The United States have been have been quiet enough, the UK, the uh, uh, France as well, they haven't necessarily given their outright support to Justin Trudeau. So he's treading on very thin ice here. It's a, it's a hostile, it's a febrile situation, a very delicate situation that I'm not sure how it will play out uh, in the months to come. Interesting. Just about out of time, but uh, Rishi Sunak as well, uh, an election looming for him. What an election looming, and he seems to have pulled back in his green ambitions, which is, I think, very peculiar. He received a bit of praise from Donald Trump for doing so, but I mean... Well, that's that, popular that's, stuff. It, it is popular stuff. I'm surprised by Sunak. He's essentially scaled back Britain's net zero commitments. Yes. So this is Britain's commitments to sustainable green energy uh, and making sustainable investments in that. He's rolled them back. He's, he's delayed the uh, the the outlaw of, of yes. petrol and diesel vehicles and some others and is, like this that. This is for votes. This really, is for really, votes, essentially. Would you just briefly tell me about uh, the latest where the Azar... Bajan story is concerned because you brought that to us a couple yeah, of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, a really, a really, a really uh, mm. delicate situation in Azerbaijan. We see it playing out over the airwaves over the past few days. At the moment, Armenia, the Armenians, uh, the Armenia, uh, Azerbaijan, of course, is under Azerbaijani control, or Nagorno-Karabakh rather, mm. is under Azerbaijani control. The Armenians are fighting for, for their citizens to be recognised there. The Azerbaijanis swept through in a lightning offensive uh, in recent days and have effectively secured control of the region at this point in time. It's a very delicate situation. Yes, it's a just. situation which I don't think can be resolved anytime and soon. Anything from the Russians on this? Or, of course, they're preoccupied, to say the least. They but, are preoccupied, you know? but the Russians technically are backing Armenia. They also have peacekeepers in the region. I think the real question here is the role of the UN in mediating this crisis and question the legitimacy of the UN. Again, that is the theme, I think, yes. of our discussion today. Well, well, our president, Michael D, questioned that at the ploughing championships. Uh, he did, he certainly did German. last week. He stuck his, yeah, yeah, he stuck his head out. And, and Once again, on a couple of issues, in fact. Thomas, is always good to see you. Thanks, Pleasure, Fran. Thanks, thanks, thanks very a much indeed. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.
Welcome back to the final hour of tip today. 1800-938-007. The text and WhatsApp is 083-311-3311. I was in Kill in County Waterford uh, yesterday and I met uh, Nellie Kelly and she's a gorgeous woman and I'm extremely fond of her and uh, one of the reasons I enjoy going to Kill is because I always get to meet Nellie and have a bit of a, a chat and a gossip and all of that. And uh, Nellie wanted me to say hello in particular to uh, Mary Doran this morning who's a great friend of hers and I believe she's a big fan of the show as well. So Mary, hello to you and hello to Nellie and uh, I'm sure she's listening uh, today as well. Alright then, this week marks the final episode in this year's Walks and Talks series. Let's see where John G and Ellie are taking us today. Okay, John, for our last and final walks and talks of the season, we find ourselves in Cashel. We do indeed. And isn't this an unusual approach to the Rock of Cashel? I know you ever come up this way before. I've done it a few times. One of my favourite walks. I love it. It's relatively new, is it? It is. It's relatively new on the tarmac here. The walk has always been here, but this is relatively new. But I think when you look up at it there, it's, you see the buildings in a completely different perspective. So we're walking up towards the Rock of Cashel, and it looks like almost a jumble of buildings up there. And if you're looking around, you'll actually, you know, and the reason is, all the, in a way, the problems of the site are its glory because what happened was it's a small site. So when they built Cormac's Chapel, but then they wanted to build a cathedral, but they kind of had to cram them all in together because the site was so restricted. And then they built a tower house there as well, which is down here. Now, that doesn't really stand out as much. Some of it has actually collapsed, but it's like the square... Norman castles that you see all over the country but it doesn't stand out like that so um, so th- that added to it then there was the hall of the Vicar's Coral which was added on later on and then of course you have the round tower which is one of the finest and latest examples of a round tower in Ireland but the great thing they're all up there when you bring them all together then they, they come together and they create this magical aura like I mean people sometimes call the Acropolis of Ireland What is it do you think that made it such an iconic Um, maybe a picture of not just Tipperary but of Ireland I mean if you look at international publications on on trying to attract tourists to Ireland you will nearly always find the Rock of Cashel on those brochures I mean it's it's the location really I mean it's such a stunning location now by our today's standards of course we always have to think of that it breaks all the rules of planning imagine if there was nothing up there today and the Catholic Church came along and said to it said propose the Diocese of Cashel Emily will put a new cathedral up there the whole the sky would fall in, you know. So it is the fact that it's there. But I think the other reason is the buildings are in themselves of huge interest. But I think that the shining example there, and we can see a little bit of it at the tower here, is Cormac's Chapel. The more you explore that, you realise just what a wonderful piece of architecture it is. And it draws on uh, Romanesque architecture, which was prevalent in the continent at the time, and the Hiberno architecture, which was here, which would have been... Uh, I suppose uh, in the uh, monastic sites here and it's also then they went to great trouble to get it right because they wanted sandstone which is you can build much finer buildings with that and so they brought it all the way. Imagine back in in 11 we'll say 30 trying to cut all this the sandstone in here to build that. What I'd love to see then is we're looking around the other way then and we see Hoare Abbey and I always think you know it's kind of the lost relation down there. That's a big bugbear of yours. It is yeah, yeah I think it is. In other words, we'll say if you're somebody, Cashel is so rich in archae- 
you know, we'll say archaeology and in architecture, that it gets lost here. I would just think, if this was out, if you say that was an abbey that was uh, around Mam Cross, I'd say it would be doing in Connemara. It should be doing four or five hundred thousand visits. I mean, a much, much later abbey, Kylemore Abbey, which is 19th century, you could get 40 buses queued up yeah. there, you know? So I'd always think that would be, if we could link the two together, have the one ecclesiastical site. And I think when we talk to our next guest now, I think the opportunity is here because there's already part of a walkway in here. I think we might be able to extend it down to Hoare Abbey. So, Lenny, me the ride. Okay, let's go. And John, here we are, deep in the heart of the rock. What always springs to mind for me when I'm in here is the Queen's visit. Oh, and yeah. it also brings to mind this is the scene of many an historical occasion, isn't it? It is indeed. The Queen's visit, indeed. Did you get an invite? No, I was not telling. So did I, but there you are. But anyway, so, yeah, when all the great and the good were up here, and it's fantastic. Of course, something like that, you know, it's kind of soft advertising. It does massively for building, you know, what's what is in you in this area, what we have to offer. So, you know, you never want to underestimate those. And of course, it is one of the prime attractions in Ireland. And we're actually, we just, I've just come in here to the cathedral. And it's a great cathedral. It was built, it's a 13th century cathedral and uh, built here on a site. Now, in a way, you were finding out this morning, uh, a very unsuitable site because, of course, it's freezing cold and we're here in September and it's cold. You imagine, you know, being up here in uh, trying to say mass up here in maybe with these huge high roofs and everything else maybe in January and that proved its undoing. But we could go around and talk about it all, but a thing that people never dwell on much it, to me is the, is the sack of Cashel. The massacre that took place. I mean, where we are standing here, right, we wouldn't be, at that time, we would not be able to see any piece of the ground for the amount of blood that would have been running around here. And this was during the Confederate Wars. Now, complicated, we won't get into it too much. But it was basically, in those days, there was wars in Ireland, but the wars were never about developing a republic. That came later with Wolf Tone. So what you're talking about is, who exactly would, would, be, would rule Ireland, right? And would it be an English king, or, or would it be an English, uh, the, the English parliament? And the feeling was that the kings then were the Stuarts, and they weren't really Catholics, of course. You couldn't, at that, well, it did happen later on, but you couldn't be a Catholic and be on the throne of England at the time. But there was a feeling that the Stuarts were very, very sympathetic, and that really they would like to really to be Catholics, and of course, subsequently, uh, James did become a Catholic. But the Confederate Wars took place about that, and they were the bloodiest wars across Ireland. And massacres took place on all sides. So whether you're on the Catholic or the Protestant side, we have nothing to be proud of. There was, you know, incredible massacres up in Ulster against the Protestants, and incredible massacres down here against the Catholic community. And one of the wars took place here then, when Bernard O'Brien, Lord Inchiquin, came along here and he attacked Cashel which was he was in with, with the parliament and he 
and the royalists were here. In other words, they supported the king, and they were uh, Catholic. They were supported the Stuarts. He had a greater army, and he attacked Cashel. And in those days, they, they fled up to the Rock of Cashel because it's better defended. But not only is it better, uh, is, is it a better defended place? It also has sanctuary. The idea that you wouldn't kill people in consecrated grounds. So right through the medieval period, people have fled into churches, and that would have been respected. When Shaquin the Burner O'Brien, he didn't worry about that at all, so he attacked here. Now, there were soldiers in here as well, and there was a battle, There's no, but he attacked, and for a while the place held out, but the weakness in this place was to get light, you have huge windows. So they couldn't break in the doors. Inchiquin couldn't break in the doors. They came through the windows. And imagine these people storming in on top of you and then cutting into everybody here with swords and just bodies lying everywhere. Uh, it was, I can't imagine the terror when you would see, you realize what happened when you see Inchiquin's soldiers coming in through those windows. Do we know how many were killed then? 1,000 is the best estimate. Wow. When you consider, you know, that the, the whole population of Ireland probably then was less than 2 million. It's probably the full population of Cashel. The soldiers were all massacred, even after they surrendered, but the townspeople, every, everything else, the people who had fled up here, any of them that they could get at, they killed a whole lot of them. And I think it took maybe a hundred years after that for Cashel to really recover as a town. But it's something that has been kind of uh, shoved away from our memories and we don't think about it. And then eventually what happened here, of course, the Protestants became dominant. So this was the Protestant cathedral uh, of Cashel and the bishop lived up here as well in that very uncomfortable tower house. You can see freezing. So when he had a few bob then, he went down, that'll be part of our story later on, he left the rock and he built a lovely palace for himself below, right on the main street down in Cashel. So he built that palace for himself, and then there was the bishop's walk, which we'll be talking later on. He'd have to walk up here to say mass, but uh, yes, I beg your pardon, he wouldn't be walking up here to say mass, he'd be walking up here for service. So he'd right. walked up here, and then eventually what happened uh, was that uh, they decided to build a cathedral down at a more suitable site down in Cashel, and that's St. John's Cathedral. But, uh, and this then, unfortunately, the roof didn't fall off of this, it was just taken off of this for materials, and uh, it has been left in this state now. So we're going to be walking down now, but I have a wonderful guest, I think, for you to meet. Oh. person I know, so uh, we're looking forward to that. Great, let's go. Here we are then, John, on the Bishop's Walk. Another kind of new addition to this loop and trail around Cashel. I think it's a wonderful new addition. All the development here has been fantastic. And I think the weakness has always been for Cashel that there hasn't been, a, there's been a separation between the town and the rock. And the typical tourist tends to come in, spend about uh, maybe 50 minutes on the rock of Cashel, spend nothing and move on. And this, I think, then, is an attempt to redress that. Um, so it's it, it's a direct connection, so people can walk in five minutes from the main street in Cashel all the way up to the Rock of Cashel. That's great. Uh, now it's you know it's it's part of the planning of this whole area, and we'll be talking. We're quite near the Cashel Palace here as well as that. I think almost this could be developed as a Georgian quarter of Cashel, as a kind of a tourist area to pull people in where you you know and the main street as well as that because there's so much Georgian architecture around here so what you say so we can move on down here now and what I'm just saying is what what you will notice is if you look at one thing is it's new so we've got to maximize everything and the interesting thing is I walk down this a couple of times and I get people coming up to me and saying does this go to the Rock of Cashel and yeah 
It does. It links the, the main street in five minutes up to the Rock of Cashel. But the signs say Bishop's Walk. I would think it should be Bishop's Walk to the Rock of Cashel yeah. if you want to make a, a meaningful contribution. And so I think, you know, this is fantastic, but let's get the message out there. Let's shout it from the rooftops and let everyone who knows, who any visitor who's in Cashel, who's coming down to the centre of Cashel, they immediately realise... They look, they see, there's a sign that tells them you can go up on a beautiful walk here to the Rock of Cashel in five minutes. Mm -hmm. But I have a great guest to talk to later on. I'm looking forward to that. We might even get a cup of coffee. Oh, you never let's know. Let's go. Okay, John, tell us where we are now here at the gate. Yeah, we're at the gate, and you're the last. Uh, minutes you've been oon and an and looking in there and we're you're locked out Alison <laughs> you can't get in there but because I'm here we're meeting a, a person who will actually let us through the gate oh, okay good so to we'll, know the right people. Be the right people absolutely he's going to let us through the gate and this is a person I wouldn't have known him up to about a year ago but what I would always say about myself is that you know um, five-star hotels I always find them a bit intimidating right and I remember one time I went down to explore Dunbeg Trump's place down there and we had a conversation with the doorman anyway and that said, uh, well, fine, we are actually looking for customers but not really your type of customer, you know. Oh, ouch. Uh, ouch. <laughs> so that's kind of intimidating and sometimes I have found that, that kind of going to Asher Castle, they look you up and down and that kind of thing. But um, there's been a few hotels in Ireland that I always felt if you're around the place at all, you drop in there. And one, we used to go down a lot walking to Ken Mayer and we'd, you know, we'd often say, go up to the park for a cup of coffee. I wouldn't think of doing that in other five-star hotels. Hotels. A couple of times, you know, we did the Sheen Falls, beautiful again, lovely setting. We'd go off out there if, if we'd been walking, have a coffee there, five star again. And uh, the Cliff House down in Ardmore, yeah. as well as that. All something, they had something special. So, what have they got? And then suddenly I realised they all had something in common. The person I, uh, I'm going to introduce to you now has worked in all of those places and put his stamp on those particular places and he has now moved on to another property here in Cashel and I think he has put his stamp on that. So I'll introduce you to a man then who I think is actually, I just wonder how he possibly fetched up in Holland because he's actually, his parents are actually from Holland. As far as I know he's uh, born in Kenya so he's actually uh, Kenyan but he's actually, it's Adrian Bartels, he's the general manager of the five-star beautiful Cashel Palace Hotel and the first thing I'll put to you Adrian is my god you're you know with that kind of a background how did you end up in Tongo's Wood College? With the Jesuits. <laughs> good question John um, I was wondering that myself uh, to be honest with you I'll uh, it was very simple my uh, mother died when I was young and my father remarried to uh, a lady that he met out in Kenya a teacher her name was Mary O'Hare and she's the daughter of the famous broadcaster Mihal O'Hare so uh, when they got married uh, they came uh, looking for uh, education for me and they said you're best off getting a European education so where we lived in Africa was uh, on a lake and the neighbours on the, on the lake that lived near us all their family had gone to Klongos and they recommended highly that I apply there so I, I got into the school for some, reason, some way or another and that's how I came to Ireland first. And was it kind of a full colonial experience there? I mean, that was still okay. It was an independent country when you were there and Jomo Kenyatta was the president. But still, I'd imagine there must have been a lot of uh, leftovers from the colonial period and that kind of thing. Was, was that atmosphere there or was, had things changed at that stage? 
I'd say things have changed. Look, there's a lot of, um, you know, British British people living there still who were, you know, of the colonial era. era. There was, you know, this sort of club society where you were members of a club and that sort of thing, and you all met there and went for swims and played tennis and that sort of thing. So there was a bit of that, like the old... I mean, look, to be honest with you, we were... That was in 63 that they got independence and, um, you know, I was... It was about 10, 15 years later. So there's, there, was a, there was a couple of changes, all right. You know, it wasn't a, 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 as bad as it was previously. You know, things were progressing better. And we'd say, was it, you know, Africa's reputation has not been all that safe. I mean, when you were growing up, was it a relatively ordered and safe society? Yes, to a certain extent. Look, we didn't know any better. We grew up as kids and you run around the place and I had friends who were Africans and we went to school. There was Africans at school and there was no, uh, you know... Great times there. I had absolutely charmed, charmed existence, to be honest with you. Um, but then, in saying that, you know, um, when the when my parents got married, uh, they did buy a property in Ireland in case they were ever given 24 hours to leave. And there were people who were, you know, pretty much uh, told you've got 24 hours to leave your farm and you were kicked out of the country. So that, you know, that. But those were people who who probably didn't do the the right thing either. But uh, there was in uh, Kenya was a very peaceful can- country, to be honest with you. So we were very lucky. And we didn't have to leave. I'm going to take us on and show us this wonderful property. Yeah. Maybe you'll even give us a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> be my absolute pleasure. Sarah Nashka, as we say here in <laughs> yeah, Ireland. Yeah, okay. very pleasure. Are you happy with me? Yep. Perfect. So, Adrian, tell us then, what brought you into hospitality? Uh, that's also a good question. I wanted to do a business that I could travel the world. I love traveling, and I thought if I learned uh, about the hotel industry, I knew that there was hotels in every country, city in the world. You could go learn it in Ireland, and you could travel in the world. And that was my that was my plan to to go back into seeing the the rest of the world. And um, I, I did a bit of that, but I ended up uh, staying most of my career in Ireland, which is not a bad thing either. So very happy with that and then it brought you here then to the Cashel Palace and I have to say I think people in Tipperary were maybe a little bit suspicious when they saw the plans for this hotel thinking this might not be a place for local people so how hard was it for you to try and get rid of that perception that people had we weren't really aware of the perception to be honest with you uh, Alison we from day one, um, Mr. and Mrs. Magna always said that this should be a part of the community, and that was the first thing they wanted that the hotel be very much part of Cashel, um, and that you know uh, we buy locally, we hire locally where we can, and you know that was very simple uh, instruction to, to, to from the very beginning. So it, it became part of our our mantra, as it were, to make sure that. Um, you know, we used, and to be honest with you, funny enough, as it happened when we were in lockdown and in allowed to travel a little bit, myself and Stephen Hayes, the executive chef here, we had a bit of time on our hands and we went to visit a lot of the um, suppliers in the area looking to see what they had to produce. And, you know, we'd, we had such high quality yeah. that we didn't have to go anywhere else looking for um, produce because it was such a great, great, uh, great quality for us. So those sort of things made it easier for us. And, you know, when we opened the hotel the day before we opened we were very conscious that Cashel had undergone two, three years of construction and trucks coming in and out and not discommoded with parking and all that sort of stuff so we said we would invite the guests the the locals to come and see the the hotel before we opened it to the public proper and um, I remember it was a Tuesday that we were opening so on the Monday we just kind of slowly had word going around town saying look if you want to come and see the hotel we're doing tours at three o'clock or whatever and 
we had then the management team primed to take groups of 10 and show them around and that was an amazing day we sort of set up for about 50 or 60 people i think we did 600 people <laughs> then it kind of came in and did tours and the emotion from the locals of people who had worked or had some connection with the hotel yeah. you know they there was a man i remember he was in his 90s he'd actually been to school in the schoolhouse and we went to show him their refurbished bedrooms that we made it into and he was in tears practically seeing what wow. he'd done you know so i just felt that you know it was a great thing to do to have people come and see the hotel before anyone else did because it's part of their community and they very much you know they had confirmations here weddings that sort of thing, communions and so on. And people that worked here as well over the years, you know, and we still continuously get people visiting the hotel who have lots of connections from the history of the hotel. So very important to link with that. It's a very special place, um, Adrian. What do you put that down to? I mean, it, the, even the atmosphere, the vibe you get coming in here, you don't get in a lot of hotels. I think it's probably the old... Uh, building, you know, there's a lot of history there. We're very proud to work in the hotel. It's um, an amazing refurbishment, and and you know what the family, the Magna family, have done to do uh, and 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 put into this this hotel is is phenomenal. It's beyond, like it's it's a it's it's a legacy that will live for a long long time, and it's kept the the sort of Cashel Palace re- revitalized, you know, and. Um, to have that and to be able to share it with people is a very rewarding and rich experience. So I think we all, you know, really enjoy working here and that's the main thing that we... So therefore it kind of comes naturally out of everyone who's working here that, you know, the people who come in are, you know, astonished by what's been done and you feed, you feed off that, if you like, you know, and you say, listen, isn't it great, you know, and everyone's kind of feeling great looking at it. Um, and I'm sure that'll die down over the number of years, you know, as, as everyone comes to see it. But it was very exciting last year. We It was like a museum, actually. People coming yeah. just we were doing tours all day long. But I think that was the great thing. I mean, we came in, you know, today now this morning. We just rolled in and we're in our walking gear. We just walked in and then we sat down and like nobody paid us any bit of attention. But then we went back into to reception and then you know when we we spoke to them, then they were ever so helpful. So I'm wondering, you know, that's kind of almost you know, three-star informality and still mix, uh, mixing it with five-star service. Yeah. I'm sure you haven't 100% the answer, but you may have some insights. <laughs> yeah, I look, I, at the end of the day, you never know who walks in the door and yeah. you don't know what connection they have with, um, you know, um, the hotel or, or other people. And, you know, they, they, there's always somebody, you know, can bring some connection, some business to us. And, you know, if you're open to... Uh, you know, for example, we, we allow children stay. A lot of hotels, in, particularly in the UK, don't like children under 12. And I'm thinking, this is the future. If these kids love coming to this hotel, they're going to pester power their parents to go, we want to go back to Cashel Palace. And that's, the, that's how you build, a, a, yeah. a, you know, people coming to you all the time and return and so forth. And the whole idea, you know, when somebody comes to the hotel to stay and has a great experience... They just decide on the way out, look, we're coming next year or we come again next time. And they just book again, you know, or and the, that cuts down on our sales and marketing costs because mm. we don't have to go looking for those people. They're already in the house. And, you know, if you think about it, when you go to a shop, you've got about five or ten minutes to look in the shop. You look at the stuff and then you're out again. Our shop is open 24-7. People come and stay here for a whole day. We've all day long to make an influence on them. And it better be a positive one because otherwise they won't come back. And that's yeah. really, you know, that's it's all about being busy and having people enjoy them their stay so they come back to us what's the future plan then adrian is it just to keep it ticking over as it is or do you have plans to develop that even more 
Um, there are plans in the future. We, 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 we're kind of in... Tell in... us all the secrets. <laughs> well, um, yeah, look, there will be plans to do something in the future. We, we kind of, we're waiting for, for some decisions to be made and uh, once that's, that's agreed, we can let everyone know. But yeah, we'd like to see um, the hotel expand and, and uh, uh, you know, offer more to the, to, the, to the local area and the local community, you know. Yeah, there's a large ballroom. We could do with a few more meetings and some of the meetings can't come here because we don't have enough bedrooms. So, yes, there would be a need for that sort of thing. So, yeah, we'd hope that would be the future plan, yeah. OK, John, and that brings down the curtain on another great series and season of Walks and Talks. Can I ask you for some of your highlights this season? Well, I mean, yeah, looking back at that, well, I suppose, in a way, John Leahy, he was completely different from what I expected. And, of course, he had gone through, uh, you know, a very difficult time, and he was very open about that. But I think this guy, he's capable of very, very deep reflection. And, obviously, the crisis in his life forced him into reflection. And he has reflected for himself but those reflections I think now are fantastic because they're a pathway to recovery I think for you know hundreds and thousands of young people and I have sympathy at this stage with the young people who are trying to maintain jobs and college and everything else and still have the monastic life of being on a hurling team. I think it's enormous pressure but I think people who have reflected through it and been through it like John Lai I think he's doing a wonderful thing behind behind the scenes and then I mean fantastic the way he cares about his mother as well as yeah. that. That was very touchy. I think what's been a common thread through all of our Walks and Talks series and even here I think what's always the there is hope and positivity and calm and peace and where better would you feel that that here at the Cashel Palace and I got the great sense from speaking to Adrian today that the future of hospitality in Tipperary there's so many bright things to come with it and we really don't have a lot well we might have a little bit to fear <laughs> yeah. but we should be very hopeful for what's coming in the future yes well I was actually last night in my other role as chairman of Tip Tourism I was actually at a meeting a very well attended meeting in Torres and there were a lot of problems but people were looking forward, looking forward. and a lot of people were seeing you know that how it's amazing I always for a long long time I and the casual people thought I thought Cashel gets no benefit virtually from what the huge attraction that's right here on its doorstep and now for the first time you have this you know wonderful uh, hotel here but more than that what it has allowed is it has allowed contact between the rock and the town right so the two can come together and that's what was all always uh, missing here so you know I think the Cashel Palace, far as I can see, and talking to people. And the great thing about it, when you go to other places and you talk to people and you say, up in Ashford, were you ever in Ashford Castle or Drumoland? They'll say no. Everybody I meet has been in here. So I think they have taken to their hearts. And I just think there's a lot more development can be done. And this is a great model. And I'd almost love to say this is a Georgian building here. And I almost think there's an opportunity here. Love is looking to the future again. We have to, for I think, a Georgian quarter in Cashel, linking the Rock of Cashel and the Palace. What I think has been fantastic. And Look, looking forward to being coming back again next year. I'm sure we'll have more uh, great guests. That's a great John G. O'Dwyer. Then congratulations to himself and Ellie for a wonderful, wonderful series of uh, Walks and Talks programmes this year. And of course, you can listen back to all of the episodes on our website, tipfm.com, and you just click on the podcast option. 
Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry in association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie. Uh, Neil Dennehy is a neuromuscular physical therapist, health and fitness instructor, author of the book What to Do with uh, Stardust, and uh, he joins me once again in studio. Neil, good morning to you. Hi, Fran. You're going to talk to us today about a huge, huge issue which is arthritis because there's so much to this topic, isn't there? There is. And, uh, you know, in a few minutes to cover it all would, would yeah. take a lot. So we'll, we'll try and stick with the basics. What, what about the different kinds of arthritis? Maybe that's a good place to start, is it? Yeah, yeah. So, so just first and foremost, arthritis, the word itself, comes from two words, um, articulated and itis. The arth is articulated, which is, refers to an articulated joint, a movable joint. So that's where two bones or two or more bones meet. So your knee, your hip, your elbow, the bones in your spine, joints that can move. And itis means inflammation. So technically any scenario where there's inflammation or swelling in or around a joint is could be called arthritis. Mm. So that's kind of the first thing to talk about. And then underneath that you have um, osteoarthritis and osteo means bone. So that's where you'd have a scenario at the end of our bones, where our bones meet. The bones don't meet on bone. If, if we had bone meeting bone every time we bent our knee or moved uh, the knuckles in our fingers, we'd have bones grinding against mm. bone and that would get very, very painful. And that's actually how osteoarthritis comes about there's a covering on the end of the bones it's a it's a cartilage mm. so most people will have heard of cartilage so if you think of cartilage almost like a, a, a firm plastic coating that's smooth and then between the joints between the plastic ends of each of the bone you have synovial fluid so that's a, a lubricant it's a, like an oil that and that keeps everything gliding and that's what we want in our joints we don't want bones rubbing against bones but over time that cartilage can get worn away and it, it's one of the few situations in the body where wear and tear might actually be the right term to use it's used an awful lot in the body much more than it should be you know because it doesn't really describe anything but wearing of cartilage is a thing so it's a, it's an activity thing usually it's over time if we're very active and maybe we're pounding our joints together a lot or we're lifting heavy weights and we're pushing those bones together and those plastic coverings though that that cartilage sheath it can eventually wear away and if enough of it wears away you're going to have bone rubbing against bone and that's not good you know you're going to have grinding and you'll have a lot of inflammation produced because your body is trying to heal the damaged yes. bone and we get osteophytes where, with your little bony growth so if we damage a bone what your body wants to do is grow more bone to repair if you break the middle of a bone in the shaft that's what it does it grows new bone to try and knit it all back together but it does the same thing on the end of the bone if the bone is rubbing together it starts to grow more bone out and we don't want that in the joint because what should be a smooth even surface can become very lumpy and right. uneven. So that's where we get distortions That's from. where a lot yeah. of the distortion in joints. Yeah. It's obvious in fingers. Mm. You know, you'll see it. In the spine, you'll see it with hunches, but mm. you can't see the bony growth, but you can see the effects of it. In knees and hips, it's not obvious. You can't see it, but, but it can happen. It can be grinding away. So... Um, how you'd know or one of the, the I suppose the main symptoms of osteo is that you in the morning people are generally quite good and it's then through use through movement through through pressure on those basically doing things that cause your bones to rub together that increases the inflammation and you get more pain as mm. you're more active now the tricky thing on that is that um, another 
kind of form of arthritis, which is tendonitis, where, where the tendons around the joint are inflamed because the muscles are pulling too hard in it. Muscular action can inflame the tendons. So activity, if it's muscular in nature, can also give you that okay. increase in pain through activity. So it's not guaranteed, you know, if you have pain because of activity, you don't always know for sure whether it's osteoarthritis or actually tendonitis is the cause of that. With osteoarthritis, really to find out if you have it, you need an X-ray because an X-ray will show you that the, the cartilage, that the bones are meeting bone and they'll show you if there's osteophytes, so degenerative changes in the bone. But our... our um, assessments of, of osteoarthritis you can you could potentially get a diagnosis of osteoarthritis if you're over 45 it might be assumed that you don't even need the x-ray you uh-huh. know so yeah that that is right. one of the situations if you have the symptoms and you're over 45 you could potentially but, be but, but that's not good i guess it's not ideal yeah it's not ideal now yeah. i know that they're, you know it's going to be based on resources and maybe they don't, don't want to send everybody for x-rays every time they have a pain in a joint but under 45 it might be looked into more than over 45 over 45 it's right it's, but i presume it would mean that the treatment would not be quite correct then is that well, you ha- you really want to know as yeah, much as okay. possible. Right. So it's you're guaranteed to know it's osteoarthritis if you've had an, an X-ray or maybe an MRI scan to say yeah, that's definitely going on. If you haven't had that, it is possible that it might be muscular in right. nature, which means you might be able to do something more about it. What about other kinds of arthritis then? And then the rheumatoid arthritis is um, uh, ru- the rheumatoid part comes from rheumatic, which refers to musculoskeletal, and um, it's the, the th- it's a kind of a theory still. The theory is that uh, for someone unknown reason that the body uh, the inflammatory response in the body starts to attack its own joints that's that's the theory but i suppose the bit that's unsure is what's the trigger the root cause and there can be many and one of the common ones um they do say you know a virus uh, an illness can actually cause it certain diseases can trigger this inflammatory response in the body and then it's it's heightened it's super sensitive and it can continue then but so can food and that's a big one for people. Food intolerances can trigger an inflammatory response in the body. And like to give you some examples now, I had a, met a lady years ago and she was she had been really bad with her fingers and could barely use her hands at all and worked in a laundrette. So you need to yeah. be able to use your hands. And she was recommended uh, through food intolerance tests to cut out wheat and dairy. And within weeks, the pain was gone. She had full use of her hands again. Now, and she had the deformities. You could still see in the fingers that there were degenerative changes. But once she removed the triggers to the inflammatory response, it improved enough that she then had use so again. Diet can, diet be, can be a huge thing. Wow. Yeah. And, and my own partner, Marzina, now, and, and, you know, she works from the clinic too as well. She's doing great work on gut health, diet, nutrition. She does food intolerance testing. Um, so I might give her a number out at the end as well, yeah, just in sure. case anyone yeah. is interested in coming and checking that. Sometimes we, we combine what I do, the physical therapy, and then the the assessment, the naturopathy uh, assessment as well to, to get the absolute best. I had another lady recently now, she couldn't use her hands at all. She couldn't do any housework. Mm. And we did some neck treatments on her, didn't even touch the hands. And by releasing that issue, we, we got rid of the referred pain into the hands. And uh, she's got a new lease on life. I recommended some arnica. Arnica is a it's a homeopathic anti-inflammatory. And I know there are people out there who say homeopathy it isn't uh, a real hmm. science, but a lot of people get relief right. from it. And but you've, you've there's, there's seen no side them. Effects. You've seen them. Get I've seen it. Relief. I'm happy to recommend it. It's got no <coughs> negative side effects. It's worth a try. Hmm. The medications, the anti-inflammatory medications, can be quite 
tough on the stomach. Mm. They can be, you know, they can be challenging themselves. So people don't really want to be on them for long periods. And I suppose that's mm. a big thing with well, arthritis. If there, if there is an alternative, it's always good to... Is, is there a genetic element to it? And there can be, yeah. yeah. There can be. And, and that can tie in with uh, the triggers. The, the So you can genetically have a food intolerance. You know, it could run in the family course, where, yes. where you're not yeah. great. There are certain diseases. Um, they're... they're Hereditary is a fa- it's always a factor. Lifestyle is a factor. Environment is mm. a factor. So oftentimes it's about looking at what we do. So so to look after our joints, some of the key factors would be to reduce impact, pounding on the joints. So running, I guess? Well, running possibly, but how you run is okay. even a factor. So if you can run, if you are running it, but you can run softly and use your the springs in your feet you know and your legs correctly yes. and you're strong enough if you've enough muscular strength to run you'll minimize the pounding on the joint but oftentimes people take up running and they don't have the strength built up they don't have the foundation built. so they're plodding and they're kind of yeah. pounding yeah, they're hitting yeah. the ground hard you know maybe they run very heel first heel to toe so the heel hits hard and, and that for, force goes up through the joints you know and, and then the joints take it so now the cartilage is taking those knocks and bangs and could get worn. Um, very repetitive work can, mm. can be a factor. It doesn't have to be just running. And you could have a job where you're just doing a repetitive action over and over again. Um, water, I know I say it every mm. single time mm. I'm on, but we have fluids in, fluid in the body that helps to keep things gliding and moving easily. If we get dehydrated, things get drier, they get stiffer, and then they're more prone. They're, they're less elastic in the yes. body, so, so we're affected more by any pounding or our impact um, posture mm. you know we know that if we hold the right posture all our bones sit in the right alignment and right order so there's less wear on them if our posture is off that can affect us i think we talked about the feet before and arches you know the arch support in the feet if we if we have fallen arches our ankles are offline our knees are offline our hips are offline because the whole structure is off and then there'll be more wear than there should be if that structure is held correctly so these mm. are all areas that it's really important to and what to you do at. yourself by way of the physiotherapy i mean is, is that generally good for arthritis or have you to take great care with it 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 depends on the scenario um again if it's severe osteoarthritis i can't uh, you can't do physio work on the joint inside the joint itself but what you can maybe do is improve blood flow to the area, which is good anyway. You can release muscular tension and maybe take some of the pressure out of the joint. So if joints are, are very tight because the muscles around them are very tight and you can alleviate some of that pressure, just free up the joints a little bit, that can take some of the squeeze off. Um, if people have misalignments, if the pelvis is offline or the spine is, is excessively curved and we can release the muscles around that, we can take some of that pressure off and, and, and help to ease it you know mm. there, there's a i feel like there's always something you can do on some level yes to, to improve but the situation it might be very gentle at times i guess well the physio it? is very gentle if somebody has <coughs> yes. joint issues it is we're, we're working on the muscles around it but we're not forcefully manipulating any joints at all it's all it's all about freedom and ease of movement very good indeed uh, please ask neil uh, my hands keep jumping when I have pains and I have pains in my arms. I suffer from arthritis in both my arms and my knee, says uh, Mary as well. So obviously some spasms there as well, aren't there? Yeah, I'd be looking at that from the neck down. 
I'd, oh, I'd yeah. start at the neck and check to see because the, the nerves that run to the arms are coming from the neck and, and the brachial plexus. There's a lot of nerve roots that come out there. And often if you can release those, you, you get a much better signal through the body coming from the hands to the brain and in, in reverse coming down. So start there and then work your way. I'd, I'd work my way down along through that. But if she has neck issues, if she's any neck tension, headache, stiffness in the neck, that's definitely worth her while looking into that. Right. It's not about arthritis, but it's an interesting one. From I was using crutches for a time mm-hmm. and now I seem to have hurt the muscles in my upper arm and uh, also in the cheek of my bum uh, as well. But obviously I'd say you come across that quite a bit, do you? Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a client recently that had a, a severe hamstring strain and uh, was waiting to find out whether, or sorry, not strain, tear. And we, was, while she was waiting to find out whether she was going to get surgery, we were working on keeping everything else in good condition yes. because suddenly all her body weight was on her two arms and the other leg, you know, and, and we're not used to that. So those muscles, they will come under strain straight away for, for weeks or months at a time and we were releasing those and, and that's often the case after somebody yes, improves course, in yeah. a situation you have these secondaries they have to re- release and realign everything that was under pressure. If people want to make contact with Neil, how, how can they uh, do that? My own number is 087 629 Yes, and number as well. Yeah, it's 085 0662 and as I said she's getting great results with people from the food nutrition gut health that side of things Very finding good. the root causes of people's widespread information, inflammation Excellent and Emma will have those numbers if you didn't uh, catch them there good to see you Neil yeah. thanks, thanks very man. much Neil for that we'll take a break back in just a moment Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage Puck On You can't beat experience With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans We like to call ourselves the experts Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today 067 24111 Or slatterysgarage.ie Tipperary's draft local authority climate action plan has been published with people in the county being invited to have their say Tip FM's Pat Murphy has more Hours to Protect. Brought to you by Tip FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out hourstoprotect.ie for more info. A lot of work has already gone into the plan, which covers the period from 2024 to 2029. Tipperary County Council now wants further community and stakeholder input into the process. I spoke to Climate Action Coordinator with the local authority, Claire Lee. So this is a new action plan for Tipperary County Council. And the council is one of 31 local authorities who are all now producing a draft climate action plan. And you'll see them published over the next few weeks. So a climate action plan is effectively an action plan. So the, the action plan for Tipperary sets out 100 actions to be delivered by Tipperary County Council in collaboration with its stakeholders and communities over the period 2024 to 2029. And there's three critical aspects to the Climate Action Plan. So number one, the function is for Tipperary County Council to reduce its own emissions. So like any big organisation, Tipperary County Council has emissions across its services. For example, in its buildings, in its fleet, in, in its own staff, it's um, public lighting. So Tipperary County Council must set out actions to reduce its own emissions. And the target set out nationally for local authorities is to reduce its emissions reductions by 51% by 2030. So very challenging. 
So a typical action that you'll see in the action plan around that will be the council will review its, its own buildings and agree a building retrofit programme, particularly buildings that are high emitters, such as leisure centres, and they will have to be retrofitted to reduce emissions and be as efficient as possible. Another example of an internal action will be hybrid working for staff and staff awareness of their own energy emissions use. So that's number one for the Climate Action Plan. The other aspect of the Climate Action Plan then is how the Council, through the delivery of its external functions and services, can help others, help communities, help businesses, help other sectors in them reducing their own emissions and being more energy efficient. And a typical example around that might be to the provision of funding and support for businesses and communities. For example, the Community Climate Action Fund. So that's to be delivered by Tipperary County Council shortly. And there's a, a grant scheme at the present now through the, the Local Enterprise Office and the Energy Efficiency Grant Programme. That's an example of, 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 of an action. As you know, the County Council is active in delivering walking and cycling infrastructure and the delivery of compact growth through its planning and, and services and, for example, the Town Centre First programme. And the Council also delivers EV charging points. And a, another important action of the Climate Action Plan is to support biodiversity in our towns and villages. For example, if you have driven the Clonmel Bypass recently, you'll see lovely planting along the road there, and that's planting for, for pollinators to help biodiversity in town. The Climate Action Plan then has one other action, and that's the des designation of a decarbonising zone. So I'll go through that with you shortly, Pat. You mentioned there about the Council looking after its own energy uh, usage and that. That's something that you've already... I was surprised to remember that it was 2014, so nearly 10 years ago, a lot of the council buildings had solar panels installed. Tipperary County Council has been quite active in this area and has reduced its emissions quite well in comparison with other local authorities. And we are required to monitor that, that emissions reduction and provide that information annually to the, to the um, Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland. So whilst we have been exemplary in this, it does increase our challenges in that we, we still must reduce our emissions by 51%. But the Council is up to that and has been a leader in this area and fully intends to continue that. Is there leeway during the lifetime of the plan to, to move things around a bit or is it going to be set in stone? I believe there is. Now, the, the Climate Action Plan and the development of a Climate Action Plan is, is provided for by the Department of the Environment. So there is guidance around the development of a Climate Action Plan. But what is important around it is that we will be monitoring it and monitoring the delivery of actions. So we'll be guided by the Department and, and the, the delivery of actions will be monitored for every local authority. So we, as we go through the years up to 2029, that I'm sure there'll be a lot of guidance in this area. Now, the plan is on public display now, so how can people have their say? And I suppose you'd encourage them to have their say. Yeah, I, I'd very much encourage. We, 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 the County Council would like to hear people, um, to, 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 to encourage them to read the draft Climate Action Plan and the, the 100 actions set out. The Climate Action Plan can be accessed online. Um, the, 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 the contact, the online website details are... If you log into this, this following website, so consultations.tipperarycoco.ie. So that's the online public consultation portal. And submissions can be made on that up until the 6th of November. 
Um, we're happy to see any submissions. We, we particularly like to see submissions that are offer positive solutions and, and examples and suggestions even, and they'll all be considered. The, the draft plan won't be adopted until February 2024. So there's time for the development of amendments if required, and all submissions will be considered as part of the Climate Action Plan. I think that's something that a lot of people probably feel that, oh, well, why would they be interested in what I have to say? And sure, they wouldn't take any notice anyway, but that's definitely not the case. Well, absolutely, Pat. The the purpose of the Climate Action Plan is to encourage and enable climate action. And the reason the local authorities have been tasked with that role is because they're very closely associated with businesses and communities. Almost all of us experience the services and the regulation and the functions of local authorities in our day-to-day lives. So the local authorities are already out there. They're already working with communities and businesses through the local enterprise office, the community enterprise section, the planning sections. So it make this work, the local authority can't do it on its own. It will be down to communities and it's more than just communities, it's all those other sectors and services that are already out there working hard. For example, the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, Transport Infrastructure Ireland, the local enterprise offices, the leader, the local development offices, should I say. There's a lot of going on, so we'd like to keep the momentum on that. The Public Participation Network, that plays a key role in the, the whole plan as well, doesn't it? Very much so, Pat. Um, the, the, the climate action plans, are one of the key air ways that they can reach out to communities is through the local authorities and the public participation networks. Um, this is a, a, an organisation that has great in, in, outreach into local community groups such as the Tidy Towns and the Green School programmes and community groups in general across the county. So we're liaising with them um, as part of the consultation process for the Climate Action Plan. Hours to Protect, brought to you by Tip FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television licence fee. Check out hourstoprotect.ie for more info. And that's a wrap from me. Emma produced Tally, looks after our content. Stephen is on the way with the Time Tunnel on the Lunchtime Show, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Look after yourselves, won't you? Bye-bye. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie